This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, Ben Eltham from New Matilda joined me to talk about the first week of the federal election campaign. Then, comedians Annie Louie and Diana Nguyen joined me in the studio to talk about their shows at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Annie's show is called Before I Forget and Diana's is called Dirty Diana. Then, finally, economist Danielle Wood, who is also the Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director at the Grattan Institute, joined me in the studio to discuss the biggest issues in the election campaign this year, which include tax, franking credits and intergenerational inequality. We're now heading into our federal politics segment, which is apt given that George will be hosting a election night event at Readings Books on May the 18th, which sounds quite wonkish. Um, and there'll, of course, be Anthony Green doing his thing on their big screen, no doubt. Uh, but who is in the studio to talk about federal politics? It is Ben Altham who is here. Hi there, Ben. Good morning. I'm actually doing an election night thing for RMIT. Oh. Yeah. And is that in the city? Yeah, it's going to be their their kind of media students are doing their own kind of student TV kind of election night special. So I'm going to be special comments guy for them. Fabulous. So does that mean people can tune in on radio or TV or online? I think it will be streamed. I will let you know closer to the date. Good idea. Now, Ben, as I said at the top of the show, there's we've already like well into election campaigning. Oh, we so are. We've got two buses and we've got the media on the respective buses. And as has happened before but is actually happening more so now is that events are have always been staged but they are becoming more and more staged in terms of even the people that politicians interact with when they turn up to these various events and the rallies that they have and the, the crowd that turn up to those but some of the things we've seen on Twitter is that these press gallery journalists who are spending their newsrooms are spending thousands of dollars to put a reporter a camera person a photographer perhaps on a bus and then they find out on Instagram that Scott Morrison is actually out greeting people and doing a bit of a informal walkthrough which they saw on his Instagram stories meanwhile the media are sitting in the bus waiting for him Yeah, well, get off the bus, guys. Exactly. (laughs) You know, what are you guys doing? Just sitting around. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, we've known about how fake the bus is for a long, long time. I think David Foster Wallace wrote a very famous article back in the 90s about being on the John McCain bus, I think. So, you know, it's a joke. Get off the bus, guys. Go do some real journalism, talk to some real voters, cover some real policies, you know. Uh, could be could be good for you guys. <laughs> well, no doubt they have the ability to hound a politician. Well, no doubt they have the ability to actually research some of the policies that might be interested to voters, you know. I mean, I would have thought that there's some things to cover in this election that don't require you to sit in a bus trooping around the country following politicians mm. doing staged manufactured opportunities. Very staged, yeah. And so we're seeing more and more announcements, policy announcements, I mean, Bill Shorten has been focusing his attention on health and has made many subsequent announcements around uh, shortening wait lists for hip and knee replacements to, um, you know, just additional parts of his, like adding to his pre-existing health policy that he announced on the in his budget reply, which is essentially 
is it 2.1 or 2.3 billion dollars worth of um, reform or at least new money for cancer sufferers yeah, who so I wouldn't call are, it reform Amy I think it's working within the system well extending Medicare beyond what it currently covers yeah that's right so uh, there was a good interview uh, last night on Radio National with um, a health health economics professor. Basically, they're, they're talking about incentive payments. So they're, they're going to pay fees for service to particular cancer specialists and also they're going to reimburse people for MRIs and other scans. Um, so there's a couple of billion dollars there. That's obviously very welcome. Um, and, yeah, they're continuing to roll out health policies because I think they know that health's a bit of a winner for labour. It is a winner, and they're not just focusing on cancer. They have announced other um, health-related issues that are not cancer-specific, which is great to see. This is welcome. It is welcome. Now, Ben... Um there's some, been some controversy, so I want to cover off on that before we get to some of the other policy items that um, has been happening and particularly um, has been controversial given disability is a major issue, the NDIS and whether it is actually functioning as it should, which most people uh, have accepted it is not, um, except some of the politicians. But uh, one of the main issues that we've seen over the last week, unfortunately, is Peter Dutton putting his foot in his own mouth again around uh, Ali France, who is his counterpart or his the person he's running against. That's right. Ali France is the Labor candidate for the seat of Dixon in Brisbane and uh, she's running against Peter Dutton in this federal election. And Peter Dutton made some very ill-judged comments about her, saying that some of his constituents had said to him uh, that they thought that Ali France is using her disability as an excuse not to live in the electorate, which anyone who knows anything about accessible housing and how difficult it is to find housing for someone like Ali France, who has a, an amputation above the knee, will know that that's a ridiculous statement. That's, a, that's actually a very offensive thing to say because it's very, very hard to find uh, affordable, acceptable accommodation for people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. uh, so Dutton was forced to walk that back pretty much within 24 hours he's issued an apology a very rare thing for Peter Dutton uh, but not before Labor's taken the opportunity to point out that he himself doesn't live in the electorate very often has a mansion on the Gold Coast where he spends most of his time when he's not in Canberra um, and then Christina Keneally the the Labor uh, front bencher has, has labeled him a thug uh, I think it's very damaging comments by Peter Dutton it's really been widely reported particularly in Victoria where Peter Dutton is a vote-winning machine for Labor, according mm. to Labor insiders. Um, and, you know, I think it highlights... Actually, what it highlights, I think, is the, the lack of political talent that the Coalition now has, you know. After losing all of these people like Malcolm Turnbull, Christopher Pine, Julie Bishop, they really are struggling now um, with people who are not the greatest in day-to-day -day retail politics. And, mm. you know, probably Peter Dutton's got through his career by being a bit of a tough guy, by posing as a, a tough talker, former policeman, obviously. Uh, that's all very well and good, but punching down has its limits, and I think maybe we're starting to see some of those in this campaign. Yeah, well, some people in the media said that they were surprised it got so dirty so quickly. Some others were not that surprised. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but Peter Dutton, I mean, he did actually double down on his comments and didn't want to apologise, and he forced the Prime Minister to actually defend him. And, uh, and he, Scott Morrison did not call him up, apparently, and say... 
Peter Dutton go and apologise straight away, which a lot of people suggested was quite hypocritical given that Scott Morrison had just announced a Royal Commission into disability and uh, he therefore, you know, people wonder whether he actually can walk the talk. Yep, absolutely. Um, of course, not all the controversies on the coalition side. We've also seen a prominent Labor candidate step down, uh, Melissa Park, Park yeah. over in Western Australia, after making some fairly mild comments about the Israel-Palestine situation. Um, that was then picked up by uh, the coalition and by some of the conservative and the Jewish media, um, and uh, she's decided to pull the plug rather than being a, quote, distraction. Uh, so people always say that. I don't want to be a distraction. <laughs> In other words, I don't want to cause any more controversy. Mm. Um, so Labor's lost that, you know, uh, former parliamentarian, by the way, former yes. MP. So she was a very good candidate and someone who's worked for the UN and does know a little bit about um, the issues going on in the Middle East. Uh, but I think it shows also just how sensitive some of those issues around um, Israel and Palestine are, particularly in the Australian context at the moment. Mm. Well, it's surprising that there wasn't that much controversy over her resignation and everyone, the Labor leader included, quickly accepted her resignation was appropriate. I mean, I wonder whether it really was. Yes, I don't think it was appropriate. I think if you look at the substance of her comments, uh, they were all factual. They were all backed up by uh, reports at the time. Uh, and, you know, whatever your view of the current situation in Palestine is, uh, I think there's no doubt that under Netanyahu, you know, the Israeli states become increasingly right-wing and in increasingly aggressive and... It, you know, it, it, it's very hard to paint a scenario of the, the current Israeli government, which is in any way moderate or, you know, in any way kind of liberal in a small L sense. Mm, yeah, it is certainly concerning that, um, like, really, essentially, debate gets shut down instantly as soon as someone such as Melissa Park has made her view known, which people actually already knew her views. Yes, I mean, this is not, not a surprise. This is not a surprise at all. I mean, anyone who's followed her career will know that she's been pretty strong on this for a long time. And presumably that came up in pre-selection. One would have thought so. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyway, I mean, yeah, I mean, she's stepped down now and I think this shows how determined Labor is not to let anything get in the way of their of their election campaign. They they really are extremely committed and focused and mm. they are trying to make no mistakes at all. Um, and so far they've done pretty well. And of course the government, which is not very disciplined and frankly not very organised, has been making plenty of mistakes and gaffes. So it's been a poor start to the campaign for the government. Yeah, well, um, a lot of them have made mistakes, including Matthias Corman, who was questioned by David Spears on Sky News. And um, he really couldn't explain the tax cut packages that they want to put forward, not just the first stage, but the second and third, which Labor do not agree with um, because they particularly disproportionately affect and um, support upper income earners, people who are paying a lot of tax, they'll actually have less tax to pay and receive, according to the Australia Institute, $77 billion in tax cuts. Well, some people think it's even more than that. You yeah. Know, the, the top end 
uh, is very generous indeed for the tax cuts, uh, particularly after 23-24. Uh, so I, I think Cormann knew that. I think he was just trying to get out of actually admitting it, basically. Um, yes, these, this government's tax package is definitely... I mean, as we said uh, the, a couple of weeks ago after the budget, you know, you'll definitely get a tax rebate straight away on July 1 if you're a middle-income earner. But the majority of the value of the tax cuts goes to rich people and in particular rich men. Yes, and why is that, Ben? Because men are the highest earners in our patriarchal economy. Exactly. So, um, and we have seen Labor talk about increasing the minimum wage or at least the wage in female-dominated industries, which is something new because often women are ignored as a, as a kind of group or interest group. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I actually think Labor's rolled out a pretty strong suite of policies around um, women's issues and women's policies. There's a, a fairly detailed women's health policy on the on the books. Um, Tanya Plibersek, the deputy leader, um, is going to have the women's portfolio. Um, so if she's uh, if she becomes the deputy prime minister, she'll also be the the minister for women. Um, and she's obviously done a lot of work on this over the years. Um, so yeah, in terms of wages for women and addressing wage parity, you know, I think government's got very little on the table and there's, mm-hmm. there's basically nothing that the government really has there in terms of policy. Labor has some some policies but I certainly don't think they're going to uh, um, solve the problem in the in the medium term. Yes well you can solve the problem with employers conducting a pay audit and then closing the gap. Well you could do that but of course then you'd have to actually force employers to do something like a pay order and that would be I think a highly controversial move by any government. Well the UK Tories have done it. Yes. and yeah. But, you know, let's just remember too that even though you might have a pay audit, but that's not going to address the structural, cultural issues within what are often highly gender imbalanced organisations. So, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, like everyone should just get paid the same rate. But um, I think those of us who've studied the way that gender and power interact know that there'll be ways in which men are able to work within the system to advantage themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have to work on both at the same time, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I think you have to attack the structural, cultural power of the patriarchy. You can't just say, let's have a pay order. Like, it's got to be... You've got to advance on every front, basically. I would agree. So, Ben, we've seen also a, a development come out that... The coalition has essentially got Treasury to cost Labor's tax plans and there's um, a lot of debate as to whether it is accurate or not. It's kind of surprising that Treasury would be asked to cost the opposition's plans. Usually it's the PBO who would be doing that, Um, but it's come out at $387 billion, which uh, Shadow Treasurer Chris Bowen does um, debate. Yeah, these are not credible costings. And actually, I think we should ignore the costings debate pretty much in general because uh, costings are something that, you know, governments and, and indeed oppositions, they're figures that they put to voters that are largely made up. You know, they, they are projections by definition. Uh, we don't know what the economy is going to look like in five years' time. There could be a global downturn. Any sort of thing could happen that could affect these costings. So I, I do think the debate about costings is often a bit sterile and artificial. But in this case in particular, these are particularly not credible figures because basically it, it's a case of the Treasury under its partisan 
um, senior management who are doing the bidding of the government of the day, basically cooking up a figure that make to make Labor look bad. And, and I think it reflects, unfortunately, on the growing politicisation of the Australian public service. Yes, it does. Now, Ben... Um one of the other elements that has been a major issue at the beginning of this campaign and presumably will continue is climate and energy and particularly the coalition has become fixated upon electric cars <laughs> not yeah. quite sure why yeah. Um, yeah. it's pretty surprising but Interestingly, I discovered on Twitter um, that Shenzhen in China is the first city in the world with all-electric bus fleet at 16,000 buses that are all-electric and they are soon going to have 20,000 electric taxis. So, I mean, electric cars aren't that controversial elsewhere in the world, but for some reason in Australian politics come election time, it's a major issue. Yeah, I mean, this has been an astonishing campaign by the government. I mean, we know why governments run scare campaigns, right? Because fear does cut through and some voters' minds are changed by scare campaigns. But even for the coalition, this has been a particularly dishonest one. So arguing that Labor is going to take away your ute, which is literally something that the Prime Minister has said, right? Labor is coming for your truck. It's just silly. I mean, for a start, Labor's policy is simply to have a target for 50% electric vehicles of new sales of electric vehicles mm. by 2030. No cars are going to be taken off the road, which, by the way, I think they should be, uh, you know, uh, but let's leave that aside. Labor's just saying that, you know, in 11 years' time, they'd like half of all new vehicles to be electric. Now... That's probably going to happen anyway. And in fact, the coalition's own figures and its own policy kind of assumes that. And the reason is because Australia doesn't make any cars anymore. All the cars are made overseas. The world is moving to electric vehicles. And it's probably what consumers want. It is. Well, um, we've seen in other countries, Norway, for example, Switzerland, that um, there's been a very strong take-up of electric vehicles. Australia is lagging behind because surprise surprise we've we've once again um, you know failed to put in place the infrastructure mm -hmm. we failed to have proper policies on electric vehicles um, charging stations yeah all the stuff that would make sense that you would do if you believed in either reducing emissions or <laughs> making it cheaper to drive your vehicle <laughs> um, so you know the, the government's scare campaign here i think is falling flat because it's so silly it is ridiculous. There are Facebook ads quite literally focusing and targeting the ad campaign to certain lovers of different vehicles based on what they've done on Facebook. So it's getting to a point where, you know, there's so much segmentation. They're like focusing their attention on Toyota ute drivers and saying, actually, in the, a Facebook post, your ute's going to... Disappear. Yes, and in fact, Toyota pushed back on this, apparently. Toyota yes. actually said, no, look, we don't support this campaign. We weren't asked by the coalition about this. We are in the process of building electric vehicles. We will have an electric Hilux coming on the market mm -hmm. very soon, so you'll be able to drive your big <laughs> electric ute around and, you know, it'll, you'll be okay. You'll still be able to put your tools in the back of it and it'll actually be faster and it'll be cheaper to run. And so I actually think that there'll be plenty of tradies who'll be yeah. quite keen on electric utes, actually. Uh, yeah, well, definitely. I think most people can actually smell BS when it wafts across. 
There's a great article in The Guardian, I think, last week about this lady who'd driven her Tesla around the country. Um, she'd gone on, like, an around Australia trip mm. and it took her three months or something and, and apparently she was just charging it wherever she could find a charging station or even out of people's homes or whatever um, with a, a transformer and it cost her $150 to drive around Australia. That's ridiculous. Yeah. So, you know, I think... When people realise just how much cheaper electric vehicles are to run, I think you'll see very quick take-up. Yeah, well, most people are pretty hyper-aware of how much petrol has gone up. And this is where the government's strategy, I think, is falling flat. It's this kind of blokey kind of... Uh, almost kind of throwback to the Howard Butler's kind of culture wars Mm. kind of stuff. But Australia's moved on since the early 2000s and a lot of these old attack lines don't necessarily work. And people, I think, are a bit smarter than the government's giving them credit for at the moment. So, And I think that's one of the reasons why these these lines aren't really working for the coalition. I mean, the other problem is they don't really have many policies. Apart from these tax cuts, they don't really have much. They've got a few infrastructure announcements that they can sprinkle around the market marginal seats but beyond that there's not really much that the government can campaign on mm. like if you could even to say this to me even a political analyst what is the government's agenda for its third term of government you'd struggle to go beyond more tax cuts for middle and rich people so yeah. because of that i think they have to go negative they have to attack labor because it's mm. all they've got it is, it is. Well, Bridget McKenzie, who is another coalition frontbencher, was out spooking a $3,000 tin shed. Mm. So, I didn't hear about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Looked pretty exciting. Um, is Clearly this a government-funded tin shed? Yeah, it's, or? it's a grant for the tin shed. Right. Yep. Uh, is this only for farmers or can anyone get in on I don't this know. tin shed? It definitely is in a rural area, <laughs> as far as I could tell. But, I mean, it does kind of highlight, although a tin shed is probably very important to a certain community, if that's really all that the Minister for Sport and many other things can announce in an election campaign... There's definitely been a decision by the government to go micro on a lot of their promises. I think they've seen what the Andrews government did with the level crossing removals, and so they're trying to promise, like an extra lane on the Mitcham Freeway, mm. you know, like or an extra bit of road out in the marginal seat here or there. Um, and they view these promises perhaps as more believable by voters, perhaps. Um, but what it isn't is any kind of vision for the future <laughs> of the country. Yeah, there's not really much of an overarching As important vision. as sheds are. They are important, yes. Now, Ben, um, before I let you go, is there anything that you would like to highlight uh, in policy-wise... <coughs> Yeah, I would actually, Amy, Um, and that is the absolute lack of any proper debate about housing policy in this election. So it's a very important issue. Obviously, as we know, we have a housing affordability crisis in this country. I'm sure many of our listeners know that every month when they pay the rent or the mortgage, Uh, and yet neither party has any, well, neither major party has any kind of a policy to address housing affordability, and I think that's a real tragedy. So what do you think about the, um, not the coalition, Labor's negative gearing approach. So Labor does have a housing policy. They're going to wind back negative gearing for investors and they're going to wind back the capital gains tax discount. They're also going to spend about $6 billion on the National Rental Affordability Scheme, which confusingly is not really for renters, it's actually for landlords. Um, And they aim to build 250,000 new dwellings over 10 years. 
That sounds like a lot, but actually we're building 225,000 new houses in Australia every year, houses and apartments, so it's only about 10% a year. So it's not very much. The problem is that houses are unaffordable in this country, so we either need house prices to fall very, very far, or we need to build a lot more dwellings so that houses become more affordable. And basically, the coalition's policy is to leave that to the market, which is comprehensively failed, and Labor's policy is, while good in parts, it's not much better because it's not going to address that big picture issue of building enough affordable houses so that people on middle incomes and low incomes can afford to live in our major cities. Mm, Yeah, well, obviously it's become such a massive issue and there's a lot of concentration in the cities as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, you know, it's got to a crisis point, I think, in in parts of Melbourne and Sydney where it's very hard to be a low-income worker and live anywhere near your job, particularly if Mm. your job's in the city. Um, So if that's the kind of country that we want to become, I think that's saying some very scary things about the future of Australian society, actually. Um, Home ownership amongst uh, younger Australians is dropping at the fastest rate of any rich country in the world. So home ownership is basically out of reach for younger Australians now. Um, And the scale of the problem can be judged by a recent report by the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute, sometimes acronymed to AHURI. And AHURI, yes, yes, AHURI for the wonks out there. Yeah. um, The Housing and Urban Research Institute's put out a report saying we need 730,000 new dwellings. That's what the shortfall is. Mm. And they think that who should pay for that? They, they think the federal government should pay for that. We should be putting public money into investing in new houses and that's what could ultimately address the problem. Would also stimulate the economy. Absolutely. A bit more construction. Now, Ben, thank you so much for coming in. We will chat about the election campaign, not next week, but the week after. Yeah, so I'm taking a holiday next week for Easter and I hope everybody else does too. Yes, take some time off if you can. Yeah. Thanks for coming in, Ben. Oh, thanks, Amy. That was Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and we were discussing their federal politics and the first week of the federal election campaign. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM. I'm Amy Mullins and I have with me in the studio two fabulous comedians, Annie Louie and Diana Nguyen, who they're both here to discuss their respective shows that are in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. I had the pleasure of seeing them about a week ago and uh, it was absolutely worthwhile to head along and see local comedians doing their thing on the stage. And I welcome Annie and Diana now. Hi there, Annie. Hello. Hi. Hi, Diana. Hello. It's so great to have you. Yeah, thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having yeah, us. Yeah, final week of the festival and Diana just did a shot of cough syrup right before the <laughs> show. The festival flew as I love it. We made it. High yeah. five. Yeah. Shotting cough syrup. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's kind of, it is a fairly long festival, oh. isn't it? Yeah, it does feel, yeah, like it's you been going on a for veteran. a while. You've done it last year. Yeah, I did a half run last year. This is my first time oh, doing... Okay, both of us. Yeah, doing a full season and only having Mondays off, but even on your days off, you end up doing maybe two or three yeah. gigs mm. to promote yourself, always selling. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so how many shows would you each have for this whole festival? Oh, I'm on 21, I think. 21? Mm. Well, I've... 
I've kind of just been tracking the year and I've already done 52. Jam. A bulk of it was from comedy festival. Yeah. 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 It's a lot. Yeah. Mm. So in terms of your content and how you... I mean, decide what you're going to do for the next comedy festival. I know a lot of people say you kind of have to have a title already, like fairly early because they start promoting the comedy yes. festival. And yeah. so sometimes people's titles are like drastically different yep. from their shows. But it seems like your titles do relate fairly closely to your shows. So maybe we can use that as a springboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, I regret mine now. Mine's changed. Like I, I think yeah. I should have called mine the biscuit tin instead of mm. before I forget. Now, But, you know, you register it and then, uh, yeah, you do have to just run with it. Whereas lots of people have been like, before I forget what? Before I figure what, I'm like, well, it's hard to, how do I describe my whole show to you and like finish the sentence? <laughs> well, an art student would get it. It's conceptual. Yeah, it's conceptual. But People? yeah, if I called it the biscuit tin, it'd make more sense because yeah. I found all these photos in a biscuit tin that my dad took when he came from Hong Kong to Victoria. So yeah, it was a very interesting kind of like family mm. photo presentation. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was, wasn't that in the 1950s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 1951 was when he arrived and he took all these photos when he was around. 20 years old so that's like I'm 25 now so I kind of think well what what would his Instagram look like if he was alive <laughs> today <laughs> he looks really dapper yeah he was dapper oh, he's pretty yeah. Very good looking. yeah I know that's yeah. it so I wanted to kind of break those stereotypes of what Asian guys used to look like because they probably thought of them like on the gold fields or wearing a, a straw hat or something mm, yeah, but no yeah. it wasn't like that at all no he was. I think he must have been setting the standard for most people. Yeah, although, yeah. There's a lot of like, his friends all like wore trench coats and were snazzy yeah. as well. <laughs> it's really great that you've like discovered a whole other element of your dad's life. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I wish that he'd share that when yeah. he was alive. But I mean, what can you do now? I kind of. Uh, it is cool to be able to get to know someone as time goes on because their memory mm. does keep living on mm, that yeah. way. Yeah. And well, your parents, both your parents um, feature in your shows. So, uh, Diana, mm. your mother, you know, is a pretty like constant feature mm. and she sounds like a fascinating woman she's who... so fascinating <laughs> i've just moved back home with her yesterday oh congratulations thank you i've got another year's worth of show content yeah. yesterday exactly life goals <laughs> there is there is a purpose for mm. the moving in yeah not just presumably you know many 30 year olds including myself, has to, you know, balance their budget. Yes. And, you know, if you can't afford rent, <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Move back to your mama's. And she's very happy. <laughs> she, The moment I moved back home, she said, all right, do you want me a cookie dinner? And I was like, home. Hell yes. Yeah. No, it's, it, it was jarring to be back home because I am 33, independent and a comedian and successful. But, uh, <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> but um, it's... it's Part of the way the universe is, is, is I am moving back home just because it's cheaper. Mm. And my mum is in her mid-60s and she's alone. So, and I am single. So I just felt like mm. it's, ah. Uh, yeah, apparently spending time with your mum makes her live longer. There you go. Yeah. And she's oh, happy. Is that what all Asian parents say? <laughs> no, I, no, I read it on <laughs> Facebook. Retirement plan. That's a retirement plan. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, it it does feature Diana in your show when you're talking about your, like, career path mm. and, you know, what your mother, who's Vietnamese, had a particular plan for you, which I know a lot of my other Asian-Australian <laughs> friends' parents do, which is, you know, they'll set you up with a piano or a violin mm. and, you know, you'll be an accountant or a lawyer or a doctor and you really pursued and found love with acting mm -hmm. and singing and comedy. Yes. How's your mother doing with that? 
Um, it took a really long time. She used to, because I, I had a, a short story published called Five Ways to Disappoint Your Vietnamese Mother. Mm. And, you know, I wrote in there about my mum walking out during the interval of shows and I'm seeing it and it broke my heart. So for years I never invited her until she saw Miss Saigon and that was for that clincher for her was that, oh, I get it now, mm. is that I don't have to come up and pretend to be a refugee and tell the story. Uh, you can do that for me. And, and that was when she realised, all right, you can do what you need to do. And then she saw people paying money. So <laughs> they say, oh, like, yeah, keep going. <laughs> I'll be the door. I'll be the door person for you. This could be lucrative <laughs> in the future. Yeah, well, you do, and you talk about your acting career mm. and being typecast in roles up until recently. Yes. <laughs> How has that been as an experience for both of you? Because you're both doing acting, I believe, in different ways or yeah. capacities in terms of how do casting agents approach someone with, you know, a diverse heritage because a lot of Australian TV is white and very homogenous and it's only just now finally reflecting a bit more of society. Yeah, I didn't think it would take that long. I remember being in high school doing a speech saying I want to be at the forefront of the wave when everything changes and you see more... Um, yeah, coloured faces on mainstream TV, but it, that was like eight years ago and yeah. uh, it's still a struggle, I think, mm. but slowly um, with time, hopefully it'll be in my lifetime where that happens. It does take a while. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, one of the elements of your show and what I've seen recently is around, and also... Diana, in your essay, which I did read. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> I do my homework. Um, so I'll quote it back to you. Um, but you you talk about going to Vietnamese school, which mm. you were a little bit reluctant about, and you were, um, I guess, not as keen to learn the language as your mum was. Mm. And having, I guess, two parts, or actually more than two parts, presumably, of your identity that were present for you and how you, I mean, I guess live it in your everyday lives like how do you both live your various cultural influences because I know a lot of people like particularly my friends who come from mainland China um, still have this really strong connection to food mm. and that has a strong connection with family and culture and you know it's a very ritualistic um, thing to have hot pot together or make dumplings um, so there's so many kind of elements that are, you kind of grow up with and then you've also got this Australian kind of element as well so I guess how have you, you know, experienced your life being both Australian and Asian? Yeah, for me it was a struggle to begin with because I didn't want to be seen as different so for a long time I just denied that kind of part of myself and uh, doing comedy at the start was a way to kind of get back at my parents for all the yeah the crap that they put me through with their uh, cultural norms and all that so I start off doing like impressions of my parents which I don't <laughs> do anymore but now it's like oh I have a better understanding that I can be Australian I can be Chinese and yeah when people say that oh you're practically white like I really push back against that mm. now because that's not a compliment and mm. doesn't do the rest of my people justice so yeah um, I think that my parents have primed them as well to know that I was always interested in this from a young age so I didn't have any pushback from them of like this is what you should be doing and yeah, yeah I think that helped a lot like when I was a kid I was just recording tapes of myself and you know <laughs> doing the whole like singing with a hairbrush so I think they knew something was up like yeah. I think if she wants to be a doctor <laughs> something <laughs> up here <laughs> and I think for me uh, what's hurt me the most is it's not the breakdown of 
so there's breakdown of language, but that for me also means a breakdown of storytelling because I am so disconnected from my mother's boat journey story and her a way of living here in Australia. Because um, I, I if, as, also another theme that's in my show is that I actually really want to have children. And, yes. Um, and for me, my scariest thing is that when I do have children, how do I pass on this crazy story of my mother coming on this boat or, or this settlement of Vietnamese people who came here with nothing, uh, gave up everything for their children? How do I translate that and transfer that to my children and to their grandchildren? So for me, that has been the breakdown. And that's why I, I guess I do, st- I do stand up is to continue the story and, and, and be an actor. And I've got this web series coming out to... Um, it's in English, more, more English, but it's more my, my containment going, I acknowledge what's happened in the last 44 years. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's for me has been very jarring. It's mm. not, that, not able to communicate that. Yeah, mm. it's a crazy experience to not be able to communicate with your own parents over things. And my friends, I haven't got no idea how you could possibly do that where you, someone's so close to you, you can't have a proper conversation. Oh, like, yeah. yeah, for me, I drop in a lot of English words. I'm like constantly got the Google <laughs> Translate ready. And yeah, I mean, at least she's supportive now. She does, I know, she knows I used to work an office job and she's always like, oh, such a shame, you know, such good money. But in the end, you have to pursue your passion. Can I ask? There's yeah. a question. Because oh, I've been in um, biracial relationships, so my partners are generally white. Mm. I found that I connect with my 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 partner's parents much better than with my own parents because we can talk to them. It's like having another Mm. set of parents but they can understand Understand. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like our parents, that that same colour pushed us out. We can't have that same relationship because of that one thing, language. Yeah. (sighs) That is really fascinating and it's probably such a great benefit to have who would say no to two sets of parents? Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See, presumably, but they'd be good ones. Yes, yeah. that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, you do talk about um, having kids. Yes. I mean, any well, a lot of women, I've got to say, at, at like in their early to mid thirties, have this moment of, do I want them or don't I want them? And like sometimes hormones kick in without your even wanting them to, and you start getting clucky and you have this like <laughs> disconnect <laughs> from what you thought you wanted and what your hormones are doing. I mean, is that, how are you dealing with something like um, wanting kids and also the cultural pressure that sometimes can come with parents wanting grandchildren? Oh, I'm really in it. I'm. Oh, I've been wanting children. I think for the last couple of four, five years, my work has been wanting children. <laughs> so it's just kind of travelled in, and I didn't realise my show was so intrinsic about children because, like, two sh- two runs in, I was talking to my director and said. I think the under theme of this show is like I really want children, so I I better have a kid next year so that I can <laughs> yeah. I be a journey for me because I can't come back next year to the comedy festival and go all right so that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, well, you yeah. could couldn't be yeah. as uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never said in the show that it had to happen in the next year. No, like it no. would just be yeah. uh, an update on what your you know, state of your life is like now. And that would still be interesting to me. I would just want to know what you've been up to. Part two. Yeah. Yeah. And there is like a nine-month incubation (laughs) period. So you pretty much have to be pregnant right now. I wish I could help you, Diana. (laughs) (laughs) 
watch this space. We've got time. We've got time. You're on radio. There's lots of people listening. Yes, so. yes. Come date Diana. Come impregnate her. Oh, no. <laughs> we'll do a reference check. Yeah. Yeah. You, do, you Otherwise, make sure. you know what? I volunteer a surrogate. You can, I've got a few good years in me. We yeah. do have a people, good couple of years well, on people you. people have been mistaking us already as they the have. same person on posters and stuff. Are so. you serious? Yes. yes. Yeah, my friend's dad was walking down the street and was like, oh, my God, your friend Annie is in a show. It says Dirty Diana. <laughs> It's so dirty. It is. Well, it's there is a lot of interesting elements to both your shows, and Mm. they aren't just one theme or one focus. Mm. But um, Annie, with your show, your—I certainly found it hugely relatable Mm. because you're talking about a lot of younger people who forget like a lot of stuff and i i'm i'm in it right now yeah so um (laughs) i mean i just looked at my facebook yesterday and uh, gabe hogan another comedian said that she drove into the city and uh then took the tram home because she forgot that she'd driven so oh my god stuff that happens like every day and the thread had just lots of people commenting me like can relate so hard so (laughs) yeah that's why i kind of did a survey amongst my friends and then turned it into a show at the beginning and then yeah all these different things that I was reading at the time really helped me with um, linking losing objects and losing people and then kind of naturally came together that way. Yeah. And there's such great elements of um, audience participation in your show and it's not like confronting like some audience participation can be. Yeah, that's so good to hear. Yeah, Yeah, because uh, I at first I was like, I did a lot of clowning stuff before this show and I thought, I just want to have a really silly show. But now I've since learned that that's not who I am as a performer. There has to be depth in it because Mm. I think with life there's light and shade so that's what should come through in comedy as well like I don't it's very tiring for an audience member to laugh every single minute of a show so they kind of need a bit of a break too and I give them that at moments in the 50 minutes I agree you don't want to get too over exhausted from your fun but one of the things that um, I think was really it came through was that um, in these kind of moments where you're having audience interaction is a time when it kind of you have this like natural relationship building between Mm. the people and you know like you know remembering people's names and making references to whatever they've said before and like there is this element of improvisation that you have that seems to come very naturally and it was a really great element of your show thanks i feel it is a muscle to be able to improvise Mm. the more i do it the better i get at it but um I would still like to improve that so uh, I might take some improv classes because I haven't had any really formal training since high school so all of that was you can all do it just get on stage every do night it. Just and do the theatre will come yeah. yeah yeah well you've done the Fringe Festival as well yeah that was the first place I launched my uh, shows yeah. because in the end I was like I just gotta do it I'm sick of people telling me like and gatekeeping me saying Mm. you can't enter this you can't do that or especially male dominated spaces Mm. in the comedy scene so I just set a goal and said I'm going to do 50 gigs in a year and I'm going to do Melbourne Fringe as well so the open access has really helped it's so empowering Mm. what do you think Diana? Uh, Regarding Fringe festivals and I'm a Fringe lover I've been doing Fringe I fringe for like eight years now and then then two days ago I get a notification on email saying you want to register for Melbourne Fringe oh, it's open again what? it's too far so oh, early yeah. yeah it's in September isn't it yeah, yes. yeah. That's it. gosh yeah I think the next show I have is a feminist rager of a show I've got a lot of anger in me now. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) No more family tales. It's going to be all about me, the Mm. next one. That's great. I think that 
particularly not that I wasn't I was 25 quite recently but to me it was a moment of like you your eyes get wider and wider and mm. wider and you get more and more shocked at all the sexist crap that yeah. happens to you and you're just like really exactly yeah mm. i mean back on the dating scene now as well so oh gosh <laughs> i'm sure there'll be lots of material lot of yeah uh. in the next year can't wait to mine it <laughs> Well, and both, well, you particularly, Diana, were talking about um, social media platforms yes. in your show. And I thought it was just hilarious. You were talking about the various platforms and your experience with LinkedIn. Yay! She's famous. Love LinkedIn. Oh, LinkedIn is my home. I am on there every two minutes. It's not really a traditional platform for no. a comedian, though, is it? Oh, oh no. It, no, it, no not not at all not i like i struggled my friend told me to jump on it because she got the beta to test that video on linkedin so anyone who's listening is now quite shocked that i could be dating on linkedin um (laughs) it's better than tinder it is better than tinder uh it's a well if you think about it it's a global platform it was bought out by microsoft uh two years ago because they wanted a platform that already had profiles why would you start a new profile Mm. platform they bought it out and said hey let's test that video and um if you, these are the stats uh for linkedin um 500 million people on linkedin only one percent is posting video oh wow really mm-hmm. it would be so different on instagram for example yeah yeah, yeah. because and it's also because linkedin is a learning platform it's not a candy platform yeah instagram candy yeah facebook you just friendship. scroll and look yeah scroll pictures but and, yeah. linkedin is about community and learning and transfer of learning so basically people in corporate want what what we have yeah is our right brains but uh we want what corporates have is money. So, <laughs> you know, it's a relationship that we need to foster really, really well yeah. so that we can benefit from both worlds. So, that's yeah. why I'm on LinkedIn. Great. Mm. That's a glowing endorsement. Most yeah. people would say LinkedIn is annoying, <laughs> but it's great that it's working for people. Yeah, find your niche. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Seriously. Seriously. Yeah, and, and find my husband. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think that should be the follow-up story. Is which social media platform were you successful dating unexpectedly? Yeah, yeah. yeah like where was Italian? Your... Yeah, you should. <laughs> I've heard of people finding dates on Twitter as well. They're... Oh, really? Yeah, definitely really? those people who yeah you slide into those DMs. Twitter's got For... it. Used to be the nightclubs and on the dance floor. Now it's like everyone's Twitter. at home on sitting on their couch yeah. with their phones. <laughs> With Netflix on and yes. the, you know, tweeting. Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the new 21st century. It is. It's brave new world. Oh, we need tips. We need yeah. tips. <laughs> <laughs> I really thought the opening um, experience of your show, Annie, mm. was a great one um, because it was so hilarious and I feel like probably a lot of people could also relate. Yeah, which um, bit, the audience survey? The, no, no. The, well, that part was <laughs> yeah. great. Um, oh, they're all just maybe you great. Could, they're all great. Yeah. Actually, there aren't many things – well, actually, I can't think of anything that was bad. Oh, that's good. Um, <laughs> that's good. Glowing, glowing yeah. endorsement. Um, but yeah, the the video that's like accidentally yeah. uploaded, and you're in the public <laughs> service, failed. which is like yeah. even like probably worse topic. than the private sector. Yeah, exactly. When you yeah. have a responsibility to uh, yeah manage a website and give people represent the, the government. Yeah, represent the government. <laughs> and I went and accidentally uploaded a video of Utopia to the homepage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the content was very relevant too, wasn't it? The content. Of, yeah, like, oh yeah, yeah, pretty much like uh, trying to decide on a new logo was something we did on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) 
So I'm sure there's lots to mine there too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I, I love hearing about people's work stuff ups. That's yeah. like one of my yeah favorite stories to hear. Yeah. Have, you ever, have that ever happened to you? Like what's your like once I was uh, like video videoing someone and I didn't press record, but we done yeah. like two hours of interviewing. <gasps> oh you know, my god! And, oh my god. Yeah, I had to go That's back to the woman and say like, "You were so great. I just need more from you." <laughs> had to fake it we just ended up repeating the whole thing and she didn't know oh, oh that's brilliant gosh. yeah nothing's springing to mind for me such a which good is worker. scary yeah. yeah I don't know I really can't think of anything I'm just the one thing I worked at KFC drive through it was my first shift as drive through chick and we ran out of five and cent five and cent five and cent ten coins and we had a pile up on Springwell Road of people, wow. cars, because waiting for five cents and ten cents. Are you coins. serious? Yep, not joking. My people first wanted their change that bad. That's crazy. Yeah, no one would pick up those coins if you saw them on the I ground. I know, exactly. But we had a, like a lineup, and it was for my first day, so I'm freaking oh, out. Anyway, that's Did the you have to run to the bank or something? No, I just stood there. Just stood there. I don't know what happened. It, just, it was just a, what, one of those days where you go, this is my story. <laughs> <laughs> this is the story the of my Defining life. moment. Yeah. It's, it's not as funny as that, though, but yeah. <laughs> no, that's pretty good. You could have been on a traffic report. Like, could have been. Yeah. Oh, finally on the news. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the things that you've both mentioned is the fact that comedy is male-dominated, and that's pretty obvious mm. and there's so many other sectors that are as well i mean mm. in even in, in art galleries the majority of people who run galleries mm. at least the highly funded ones are men at the state level and government wow. levels so i mean it's really hard for women to get ahead in a whole range of industries but mm. is there in terms of the the cultural element in melbourne or even australia how do you experience that like is it um because often a discrimination can be overt or covert and you can have a bit of both. But how are you experiencing, you know, doing your shows and promoting yourself? Mm. And is there any difference or is there any kind of obvious discrimination? I found it very valuable just to know that you have your audience and it might not be the same as some straight white guys' mm. audience. So it doesn't, you're not really competing. You're, I'm like, I am here with my people and this is for them. You do you. Because... Mm. Yeah, in the end, I mean, I've been to so many rooms where I felt like I wasn't welcome to do my five minutes. And mm. yeah, I mean, this mm. book that I've um, been interviewed for called No Apologies by Joanne Brookfield uh, addresses a lot of this. And it's a very common theme that we're being like, you know, squeezed out, even if it's not deliberately, because mm. men often just don't think that they ha are creating a boys club. They're like, oh, well, I just had some drinks with my friends and then I came yeah. to this gig and now we're all laughing at each other's jokes. Mm. Um, but now that there's more women on the scene, we've formed lots of communities online as well as like being able to see a familiar face at a show. Yeah. It makes all the difference in mm. keeping you in the, in the game. Yeah. Yeah, and someone like Diana, when I see you around, I'm like, yeah, we're doing it. We're just supporting each other. And That's everyone it. else, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. We, we got each other. Just keep on doing keep it. Keep doing it. And, and I guess for me, especially when I do lineups and I'm sandwiched between two men, that's when I know, oh, this would be good to see a change in this. When two women on the outskirts of the sandwich and the man's in the middle. Or <laughs> when there's eight, you know, eight men and two women. That's for me still showing me these inequality. Mm. Um, that there isn't a trust for women to be funny. And I think um, when we went to the book launch, mm. someone had said, men, men are listened to and then watched, but women are watched first and then listened. And... Um, I'm, I'm, I think for our audiences and for people that do come buy tickets to our show, they listen to us first and 
and then they make their judgment. Yeah, but and women actually, the buyers of tickets, mm. like more comedy mm. audiences are female. Females. And they're the decision makers of the household. They decide what to do with the entertainment they go and watch. So mm. that is a very powerful audience. And I can't believe more men like don't you know, acknowledge that. that. Yeah. yeah. Mm. That's so true. Well, who would you characterise as your audience? Like, obviously, it's not homogenous, but what kind of people do you think would opt in to see your show? Mm. I've got a pretty even split with adults and concessions. So I think a lot of yeah. students as well as um, the Asian community for sure. Mm. And, yeah, even some older people are showing up at this show. And I think this this one I'm happy for them to come and see. But previously I'm like, no, I just want, like, sassy millennials who are woke. <laughs> <laughs> Avocado, avocado. (laughs) But I like having a broader appeal, but it's definitely more female for me, maybe 80% Mm. even. Yeah, right. Mm. Yeah, mine's mine's a mixture. I I always do a call out, anyone who's Vietnamese here or from Springvale, and Springvale's dead quiet because no one's going (laughs) to travel 45 minutes to come (laughs) out to your show. But, um, yeah, it is a mixture... I'm, I'm always curious how what tr- attracted them. Um, was it my f- my my flyer saying "Dirty Diana," which is implying that's dirty, mm. or have you come because I am the only Vietnamese female comedian? Yeah, yeah, or one of the only few Asian comedians on the. And um, I remember when we selected our times for comedy festival, I said to Annie, "We can't." Like I said, I, I, I'm not going to have the same time as you because I don't want to. Um, block you. I want people just to come see both of us. But then our times ended up being together, mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. like, actually, you know what? White comedians are all have different, all same times. Yeah, it's no just, one's there apologising. Like, so sorry, sorry, I stepped on your. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, your so face. sorry. <laughs> and I just, and I just said, look, you know what? We'll just do it, and we'll just sell, sell it. Mm. Sell yeah. it as the nine forty five chicks. Yeah. Um, and people shouldn't just be seeing one show. No, they, they shouldn't. Yeah, it's a re- repeated thing. It goes on for a whole month. You have so yes. many opportunities yeah. to go at a, a certain time each day yeah 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 mm. and there's the earlier hour on a sunday if you're like really yeah. like a nana <laughs> exactly i've had a lot of people say that yeah, yeah. i mean i, I i'm Matt falling Nate. asleep like yeah. think of me like the performer i was washing my hands at seven o'clock in a restaurant going i want to be in the shower right now yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can't do a show. i was think wondering that because 9 45 to have really high energy mm. and be like yeah. lifting perhaps some of the audience who's also a bit tired if it's like midweek absolutely yes. and I've, usually you have to get up at nine or something to do interviews like oh, this. Yes, it is a long yeah. day. Most the dif- most difficult thing is just being out of the house and like even if mm. I'm sitting in the park, like exhausts me. Just <laughs> <laughs> <to> stay awake. <laughs> I'm so glad that I'm not the only one like this. I constantly wonder <laughs> no. if I'm becoming more like my grandparents. <laughs> does your back hurt as well? Yes, yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> you won't go to a chiropractor. Yeah. <laughs> I've been living there for the last two weeks. Oh. Seriously, it's it is really nice to actually break those stereotypes and to be like, you know, there's more similarity. I think a lot of the time, intergenerally, intergenerationally, than we set out to you know assume and it was also interesting the study that you quote and um mm. annie about the fact that actually millennials are more forgetful mm. yeah pretty shocking stuff yeah that, well yeah i'm not surprised anecdotally yeah. to me not shocking but like to everyone else probably yeah oh yeah. yeah we forget to shower more often and we forget what day of the week it is and i have not known what day of the week it is this <laughs> whole time like every day is just groundhog day for me and these phone numbers we don't we, we do, not, do not remember yeah, phone numbers yeah, like right. we're used to anymore no i can't still can't remember my sister she's had the same one for the last like really? 12 years i can't remember <laughs> it yeah yeah <laughs> you can see how the brains now switch to the phone like yeah. it's everything's now it's our memory base now Imagine we lost our phone. That's why we freak out. Yeah, it's an extension of our 
bodies. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And it's funny when you ask the audience, like, have has anyone forgotten anything recently? And I think someone in our audience had forgotten their driver's licence so they were carrying around their passport <laughs> yeah. everywhere. Oh, my yeah. gosh. <laughs> Take a photo of... Oh, yeah. yeah. Seriously. <laughs> It's just like so literally one example of so oh, many. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I wish I could do that. Maybe I will do the survey again so I can collect more of these stories. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's Dynamite. highly scientific. Yeah. Mm. Facebook surveys are the mm. way. Yeah. 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 I'm not a scientist, but I think. <laughs> you look like one. Oh, totally. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> a new career after this. Yeah. No, and actually, the co- a common theme for both of you is that you're both doing this full time now, mm. which is a big step. I'm pretty fresh to it. You've been at it for a few years. Oh, not well. I, as an actor, the last three years I've been full time was in community development, and then um, it was made redundant. Woohoo! Yeah. So it has been interesting. I've my my, my accountant was like, "Wow, this is the lowest you've ever made in ten years." Oh, ouch. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "Yeah, but I'm happier, uh, yeah, kinda." But um. Yeah, it's, 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 it has been interesting. Cause, but I, but you've more consistent as a comedian. Mm. I've been morphing in and out as an actor, mm. you know, writer, all that. All that, all that. So, um, yeah, this is probably th- these four weeks at the comedy festival has been the most concrete I have been as a comedian. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've, I've picked a lane. I'm just trying to stay in it and drive mm. as fast as I can. To, yeah. yeah, I mean, it does get get me down sometimes when you see it takes 10 years to build up a Ugh. you know, reputation and for people to recognise you. And I always say my favourite comedian is Celia Pacola and everyone's like, who is that? And I'm like, no, what? Like, she's been yeah. all over the TV. It's, it's, just how, it's just how community people, they just don't know. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It is it. surprising. Yeah, it is surprising. Um, and I see people like Tom Gleason having huge audiences at yeah. their shows. I'm like, just give me a slice of that, Tom. Like, just a little bit. You don't need all those people. Just a little bit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Hard chat and hard quiz. Yeah. Mm. yeah they're, all on, they're all on the massive. They've had such a great pop silly trail yeah. leading up to Comedy mm. Festival. Of course, they're going to sell out. Yeah, yeah, true. It's a good thing to remember there's no shortcut, though. You just have to keep doing keep it. Going. Even the nights mm. that are tough, it's, it's, you're working towards something and you're just you're being there. You're mm. in people's awareness at least whoever comes you know you just have to grow it slowly yeah Yeah. i'm speaking with annie louie and diana nguyen and we're talking about comedy and your respective shows which are on at the melbourne international Mm. comedy festival um before we close out the discussion there were just a couple of things i wanted to touch on um international touring like if you're both kind of focusing on your careers um acting and comedy how does your year potentially look like if you're doing the melbourne international comedy festival maybe fringe you know what other kind of um types of crowds and touring do you intend to do or do you think would benefit your career at at this point where you're where you're at at the moment everything's planned so far in advance Mm -hmm. yeah you really have to you could know what you're doing in two years time potentially if you yeah. want to do like edinburgh fringe and save they up yeah. for that yeah mm. save up and um yeah last year my schedule was dictated by perth then adelaide comedy festival melbourne fringe and then this year i went over to the states did a gig uh, there, experience watched a lot of shows and mm. then yeah now i'm thinking actually i would like to do more learning so i would 
do some improv classes and I'm still considering Edinburgh Fringe just to do spots, but I'm not ready to take a solo show there yet, but Diana has. And yeah. It's such a steep learning curve going over there. Yeah. Even just watching stuff. Bad shows really helped me a lot. Because <laughs> there's like 3,300 acts yeah. and not really? everything can be yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. It, is, well, it is literally the world's biggest arts festival. It's so, have you been? I've been to Edinburgh, but, but not for the, the Fringe Festival. festival. Oh, no. it, you have to. It's yeah. just on yeah. doof doof. Yeah. Yeah. Arts, <laughs> arts doof doof. Yeah, it's great. Edinburgh to, for me was already doof doof and it was winter. Oh, yeah. So, <laughs> I can't even imagine what a whole group of Scots <laughs> oh, in, and overseas. And the whole world flies over. Yeah. School buses of students. Like, I, I was amazed. My first Edinburgh Fringe took me 20 years to get here. I'm standing there and then there's sec- high school students from a US town on really? a full bus bringing in, like, hairspray. Like, uh-huh. you know, it was my yeah. brain just boggled that that the arts was so fostered yeah. in this one school, they said we're taking these kids. Yeah, that's awesome. If I had just had that, like yeah. it's that support from my mum, like I could have done so much more <laughs> in my life. School bus of kids, <laughs> yes. and my mum had organised. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, it's definitely you do have to plan in advance. I'm definitely not doing Melbourne Fringe. I don't think this year, taking a break. But um, but yeah, you do you do start thinking about. Um, Wait, what are the steps for 2020? Mm. Yeah. It's yeah. a nice number, 2020. Yeah. Mm. And I might still do Melbourne Fringe. It's a great place to develop stuff yeah. without the pressure. You can say it's a work in progress show and just yeah. throw mm. stuff at the wall, see what sticks. Um, Adelaide was pretty hectic as well. It was hard doing shows when you don't have any friends. <laughs> 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 like I had two ladies come in, just two little old ladies, and they came late and they were like, oh, so sorry, we're like halfway into your show time. Can you just do your show in half now? And I was like, blah, like my oh, head wow. exploded because I'm like, there's yeah. a story. I'm like, I have yeah. to condense the storyline and try not to look at you both in the eyes because that's too intimidating. <laughs> got too many things to think. Of. Like, and I have to factor in time for you to get down the stairs because you're going to another show. <laughs> oh. Amazing. Yeah, so it is amazing. Very and mm. I love that your show Annie is in um, the Chinese Museum, which yeah. I've been intending to go to for so long, but hadn't oh, yet been. Yeah, they renovated it so nice. Yeah, so it back is really in the daytime, lovely. You can't. You can't. Uh, look at the uh, the kind of exhibits after the show because they yeah. do close and their yeah the, their hours are like nine to four or something like that but um yeah I, oh, jinx has a funny joke because he's like there's a lot of asian acts in the chinese museum that's because uh you know there's so few of us would become artifacts <laughs> but for me that the show d- deserves to be there because it matches yeah. everything that's on the walls mm. with all this photography uh, and i know they they've got people just doing straight stand-up that you know you don't have to you, you can be australian you can be indian you can mm. be really any culture but for me i felt that there was a particular desire to be in that venue and it wasn't my original venue mm. yeah, yeah right. i was at the mantra hotel that and then suits you better yeah mm. it definitely suits me better um, it's highbrow very highbrow oh, high <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. The, the chairman of the museum said that it should be a permanent exhibit and i just imagined myself Aww. like performing like a robot to <laughs> no one while like Welcome. crowds come yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you ever get stuck point. for a job <laughs> yeah you could do totally do that yeah. it's like those street buskers <laughs> yeah <laughs> I'll come in as a lion. Yeah, employee. Dance behind. Yeah. <laughs> and your show, Diana, is mm. in Storyville. Mm-hmm. I had also had not it's encountered it. Such a gorgeous yeah. place. You, have you been to the Butterfly Club? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I found it very similar in that uh, in the vibe. very intimate, mm-hmm. not that nice velvet curtain. And it's the first time this um, 
bar has ever done comedy oh, festival. Really? Because my yeah. my my venue was originally changed too. It was that yeah, right. originally like the old hairy little sister until it got shut down. So December was mayhem when that all happened, yeah, and right. then um, the comedy festivals um, organised Storyville, and I'm th- really thanking God that that happened. Universe yeah. does miracles. It's a very nice venue, yeah. Mm. All the decorations are so cool. Big mushrooms. Yeah. And you, said, you have a friend who makes the mushrooms there. No, what do you? No, oh, no. someone told me. I, I have know someone. They're like, oh, oh the you know, you mushrooms. Make the mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, they're like, oh, wow. they're a prop person. Are they paper mache or is that more sophisticated? No, I think it's more sophisticated. Yeah, they they they, they light up. I didn't see you that. People listening like must be confused what <laughs> mushrooms we're talking about. <laughs> we're not the magic kind. No. These are like, you know, in storybooks. Like, yeah, it's like Alice in yeah. Wonderland. Yeah. yeah. they blown them up. They made them giant yeah. and decorated yeah. the place. And there was like a curtain with like Harry Potter, I think, <laughs> on it too, mm-hmm. which was oh. cool. Yeah. 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 yeah that was the first thing I saw. And Goblet of Fire cocktail they have. Oh, wow. It's all themed. And they That's have awesome. um, Harry Potter um, cocktail mixing nights where you can learn how to make cocktails. Yeah. Do they have butterbeer? That, yeah. that would be the next step if what they haven't. Winter is coming. What yes. is butterbeer? It's, a, it's from the, the book. It's the, yeah. the drink for, oh, okay, that gotcha. all the kids can can have. Yeah, I miss, I, yeah, I'm not, yeah, I miss that bit in the book. <laughs> they, they sell it at like the Universal Studios and stuff oh, as well. There you oh, wow. go. Yeah. Well, thank you both for coming in and chatting with us and sharing some of yourself with us as well and if people want to go along to your shows they still can because there's a whole mm. week left isn't there yeah, yeah. till mm. sunday Ooh, six more shows yay and that means and now you both are at 9 45 because yeah, i know there correct. was a little yeah. difference at the beginning yes um so that means one can go on different mm. days mm-hmm. yep and it's all hang on what week are we now so there's good friday and uh, that's right annie yeah you're doing um the, the good J, as good as Friday, yeah. So yeah. that's at the main stage in the town hall at tw- 1 o'clock this Friday. You just line up. It's all free. You yep. will definitely be able to get in. They'll fit you in somewhere and it's uh, broadcast live to the whole nation. That's so, so you can cool. tune in on so your, in your car as well. Congratulations to both of you on Thank your you. successes you. and your determination, which <laughs> is so important. And, you know, it, no one's there necessarily with you when you're questioning life. <laughs> oh, yes. But Sometimes <laughs> like, that Diana's there. That's, that's, that's our function with yeah. each other. <laughs> Crying over Skype. <laughs> well, it's so good you, ha- you both do have each other. And it's great that there's this community of women supporting each other in comedy. So, mm, yeah, definitely. congrats. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Annie Louie and her show is Before I Forget as well as Diana Nguyen and her show is called Dirty Diana and I've linked to the events on our Facebook page so you can go straight to their events and book tickets and uh, I highly recommend that you do yeah yay Um, so yeah have a great rest of the festival thank Thank you. you that as I said was Annie Louie and Diana Nguyen This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Danielle is the Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director at the Grattan Institute and she is a trained economist, um, but don't hold that against her. <laughs> Hi, Danielle. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's We're great not to all have dismal. You. No, you're not. That's what is the fantastic thing about um, that women economist group that you set up. 
Yeah, is that there's so many other great economists out there, not just the typical talking heads we often see at budget time. Yeah, exactly. We have a lot of fantastic, young, dynamic women economists out there that we're trying to kind of get out into the public domain because, yeah, the, the public face is still very much kind of the old guy in the suit, but totally. we're trying to change that. Yes. Um, I'll just have you tip your mic up a little bit if that's all right. Perfect. Um, so we did see some of those, you know, traditional types on budget night. And it was interesting to see how different economists talk about policy in different ways, because there is this kind of, um, there are value judgments or choices that politicians make when it comes to policy. And the budget is probably one of the most political documents because where you put your money kind of shows what you prioritise. And also a whole lot of other, you know, ways about and ways to indicate how your party or government actually approaches different types of economic challenges, such as uh, wages growth being stagnant, um, consumption really dropping, uh, the housing sector get taking the heat out of that, and what that you know is an implication for state budgets as well as federal budgets. So it is a very revealing document, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always a revealing document, but I think particularly the one before an election tells you a lot about those sort of values that you're talking about. Um, So you get a lot from just looking at the policies and where the emphasis is. And I think actually this time around, there's a real distinction between the two major parties. Um, So if you kind of look at the document that that Josh Frydenberg handed down, the, the emphasis was very much on bringing down tax, bringing down government as a share of the economy. Um, and, and the flip side of that, which we put less emphasis on, though, is, is lower government spending. Obviously, if you're bringing mm. down taxes, um, then you have to spend less over time as well. Whereas the, the Labor government, I think, has pretty clearly signalled it's more comfortable with, with taxes rising as a share of the economy, spending more on services and perhaps some healthier budget bottom lines. So we, we in terms of the economics, we actually have a really distinct choice at this election, I think, about kind of what sort of society we want to live in. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty rare and different from the past couple of elections where there wasn't a huge difference in the parties at all. Um, There were some differences such as, I mean, Labor has put out some of these policies they're taking to this election, they took also to the last election, such as the changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax, um, changes to superannuation tax concessions. Um, So there are some kind of contentious policies that will affect um, some of the older generations of Australians. Um, They'll also positively perhaps affect the younger generation of Australians as well. Um, So why don't we highlight, I guess, the intergenerational aspect of this before we head into the details about tax and and those changes because I know you wrote a piece on budget day to talk about you know this is a major issue is that you know younger people are struggling to buy a home they um and also just families in general are not being able to afford um the things that they need to be able to function like it's hard to pay the bills pay the rent keep your car going take your kids to childcare, all these various things that people struggle with and so that has been a real focus for both parties but they have very different ways of approaching it and it looks like perhaps Perhaps Labor has more of a plan in terms of um, helping young people get into the housing market, for example, um, and or 
receive some kind like have a bit of a balancing of the impacts of of policy levers yeah i think that's right i think there really is um you know a real difference in the kind of generational narrative coming out of the the two parties um and i think um what labor's kind of picking up on and, and what i was talking about in the piece is that over the past two decades um, there's really been a, a series of of policy changes um that have um really been to the benefit of kind of better off older Australians. Um, So, for example, the decision to exempt superannuation from tax in retirement, um, which meant that you could have, you know, quite substantial savings in your superannuation and not be making a contribution to the tax system. Um, The the changes around franking credits, which meant that you could get refunds for franking credits, which um, can be quite large for for people with big share portfolios in retirement. And also there are actually special tax rates for for older Australians. So they get a bigger tax-free threshold effectively than than younger Australians. Um, All of those together have meant that well-off older Australians are now actually not paying much more income tax than they did even 25 years ago, even though their incomes and wealth is is much, much higher. Mm. And that sort of reorientation of the tax system is particularly an issue in a world where you have an ageing population. So as the baby boomers hit retirement age, um, that demographic shift is going to mean that we have less or fewer people of working age for each person over 65. And at the same time, you're ramping up the size of the transfers to people over 65. I've got real concerns about the sort of sustainability of the budget going forward. What that would mean is the only way you can make that those numbers work is essentially mm. to up taxes on younger people. Um, and I think what Labor's doing is saying, well, let's shift the balance of policies, including, for example, on franking credits and a few other areas, in order to reduce those future pressures. Yeah, and they will be big pressures because, I mean, our health system is still struggling to keep up with how things are at the moment, um, as we can see, and more and more people need to pay to have private health insurance to fill this kind of gap that is there. And um, and certainly you see that kind of inequality in terms of access to um, health care and the, I guess the long waiting lists that exist in a public sector or public hospital sector. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, health is one of those areas where historically it's always grown faster than the economy. We see that right around the developed world. That's not just an Australian specific thing. Um, As new technologies, new treatments become available, people want access to them more than understandably. Mm. Um, But those things do come at a cost. Um, So sometimes the government rations through things like waiting lists. Um, But even with that rationing, health spending still tends to grow much faster if, so if we want to continue to get access to the latest and greatest treatments, which I think most people do, um, we have to realise that that comes at a cost. And, and I think what we haven't really had the conversation um, about how it is that we actually pay for that. Um, you know, are we willing to you know, allow taxes to creep up a bit so that we can continue to let health spending grow? Or do we need to find cuts in other areas in order to finance that? Mm. And do you think that is really one of the key questions we're discussing in this election? I think um, it sits behind the discussion in this election. So if we we look at the budget, um, the coalition is actually forecasting that its government spending will fall as a share of economy. Quite drastically too. It's like not really a slow fall. It's like quite a significant fall in the money that they're spending. Isn't it also on um, welfare? Well, so they've said that, um, yeah, so they said that what's driving that downward fall in spending as a share of the economy is um, welfare, well, partly about lower welfare spending. 
um, that looks, you know, a bit optimistic to me, given that we've already got, um, you know, we've got pretty low unemployment rate already. To think that you're going to be able to kind of push that down much lower and save much on the welfare budget is a bit strange. We know that the NDIS is going to be ramping up um, a lot over the next four years, so we expect mm. to see spending rising substantially there. Um, and, and payments like the age pension, um, you know, are they're going to increase rather than decrease because we've got more people moving into retirement age. So I think there is some funny things going on with the assumptions around spending over the the 10-year period. Um, And those spending numbers are really what gives the coalition the result that they've been talking about, which is growing surpluses even when you're giving really big tax cuts. Mm. And they are giving massive tax cuts. Like if we're putting it into perspective here and and looking at their plan as a long-term plan, because this is a 10-year essentially plan with three stages um, proposed and it would come into effect um, from July at least the first stage um, for either of the parties because there is some consensus um, on that and it was interesting to see Labor um, say that oh well we're so um, happy that the coalition has caught up with Labor from last year and then Labor then took it a next step further um, in terms of the lower um, income level and trying to give greater tax relief to that level or sec- section of Australia rather than the high top end. Yeah, that's right. So they're actually, in terms of the plans for the next three years, so mm. the next term, there's not that much difference between them now. So about 70% of people will pay the same amount of tax, um, whether you know Scott Morrison wins the election or Bill Shorten wins the election. As you say, the, the key differences are for people earning under 48000 um, Labor will give a slightly bigger tax offset, about $90 a year extra. And for people right at the top end, for people earning over 180000 which is about 3% of taxpayers, um, Labor will... Um, charge them a higher marginal tax rate, 47, as opposed to 45%, which is about $400 a year in extra tax if you're someone on, say, Mm. $200,000. So it's people at kind of the the either end of the income spectrum that will um, have a different outcome under the two plans, but for most people it's the same. The big differences come... Um, you know, under stage two and three of the coalition's plans. So stage three happens in 2024-25. So we are talking kind of two elections out after yeah. this one. So it is, it's it's somewhat of a hypothetical discussion in a way, but nonetheless, this is the plan that coalitions put on the table. So that's what we kind of have to analyse. At that point, there is very large tax cuts. They take out the 37 cent bracket so that everyone earning between 45000 and 200000 is on the same marginal tax rate and they're bringing that marginal tax rate to $0.30 cents in a dollar. So that's quite a substantial change to the shape of the tax system in the country. It's also, um, it costs a lot of revenue. So mm. most of the cost of the $300 billion plan comes in that particular stage. Um, and Labor has said that it, that it won't match those, those tax cuts. So for, you know, high income earners... Um, that could be worth up to sort of eleven, twelve thousand dollars a year in in tax difference between the two parties. So it is it is a sizable difference. Um, obviously, smaller at the at the lower end, but mm. and there's also a way, I guess, with some of the more wealthier parts of Australia, they often will have like family trusts or foundations and utilise their superannuation in order to reduce their taxable income so that they aren't paying as much tax anyway um, to begin with. So I guess there are ways in which um, people who have excellent accounting can actually reduce what the tax office takes from them anyway. 
Yeah, that's right. It's a bit of a, a perennial is that, um, you know, that the higher income people will have the better advice and there are um, a number of ways in which they can legally uh, minimise their tax. Um, so on, interesting, though, on some things like family trusts where um, that's traditionally been used to kind of split income. So um, if you've got a um, you know spouse or a family member that's on a low income, you can use a trust to split some of your income with them and get the benefit of the tax-free threshold for that particular individual. Um, Labor does have a policy to to crack down on that sort of income splitting through discretionary trusts. Um, Essentially, they've said that you'll pay a minimum of 30 cents um, tax in the dollar on on any kind of distribution from a trust. Mm. Um, So that will help address um, some of those loopholes that that do exist for for better-off people in the system. Yeah, and they are... um obviously loopholes that people can take advantage of as you said entirely legally Um, but obviously you need to be of a certain means to be able to sometimes set up trusts or have your own self-managed super fund it takes a bit more effort and time to do some of the financial things that um, wealthier people can do but I was interested in your graphs um, there are so many of them. <laughs> I love crafts. You do. <laughs> I'm an economist. <laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm, it's tragic that we're on radio and I can't show them to you. But um, there was a graph around uh, where the average Australian income sits and it's substantially lower than most people would assume. Yeah, that's right. So we often get the figure bandied around about average income and that really is average full-time income is about $90,000 a year. But if we – that's – you know, that is the top 20% of taxpayers So, because the average is skewed mm. by high-income people. If we take the median instead, i.e. someone right in the middle of the income distribution, someone at the 50% mark, um, then we find that median income, I think, I don't have the chart in front of me, is about $50,000. Um, so it is um, a lot lower than um, a lot of people realise. Of course, that's because um, a lot of people work part-time mm. yeah. rather than rather than full-time. Um, and I think... Um, you know, when they do surveys, most Australians think of themselves as middle income. And that's often because we kind of um, socialise with people that we work with and maybe in a similar income group to us. Um, and so, you know, you have people earning, you know, upwards of $120,000 a year, which would put them in the, you know, the top 10% of income earners. Yeah. Uh, they think they're middle income. People earning upwards of 200000 they'll put them in the top 3% of income earners also think they're middle income. Mm. So I think, you know, perhaps in some of these discussions, having a better idea of what the actual income distribution looks like can bring us back into reality. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people would be like reflecting on their own situation and going, how does one live on 50,000 if you didn't have a partner to also contribute a similar income level. Yeah, that's right. So some some of those people will have um, partners um, and so they'll be living in a household with higher levels of income, even if the individual has lower levels. But, um, you know, a lot of people would be living on that alone. And we, I mean, look, we know people live on, on Newstart for $40 a day, um, you know, certainly not comfortably. And, you know, it is, um, you know, a real shame, I think, we've let that get... Um, to such a, a low level, but you know people do get by. But obviously, you know, once in your that, that part of the income distribution, there can be a lot of cost of living pressures. Yes, there are. Um, certainly, also if you have children, it gets more stressful as time goes on. I'm told. Um, so let's delve into one of the topics that has come up for us a lot is franking credits. It's kind of a funny name, and I know there's dividend imputation is another way of referring to these things. But is there like, 
We saw a very big controversy as soon as Labor made this announcement, which they did make quite a while ago now. To, to me, it seems like ages ago, probably wasn't. Um, but they've, they've announced it at least well in advance mm. for the coalition to announce a parliamentary inquiry into an opposition policy, which was led by the um, economics chair, uh, Tim Wilson, who is a member, I think he's in Brighton, yeah, um, in a Bayside electorate in Melbourne. And uh, and that was really quite surprising and it seems like a bit of a microcosm for the, the issue itself and the way it's played out in the media and also in the general population, which is there's like one side that's like really angry and there's another side that's either apathetic or confused. Yeah, I think that's right. I think so. Look, the people that stand to, to lose from the policy um, tend to be better off older Australians. Um, so the reason they end up losing is they've either got their money in a self-managed super fund um, or they have a kind of reasonable packet of of shares that they held directly. Um, Because of the way um, taxation around super and other aspects of retirement works, often these people uh, are not paying tax or they're paying low levels of tax. And that means when they get the franking credits back, they get a refund. So they're not using it to write down their tax like everyone else is. Mm. They're actually getting a cheque in the mail, which is kind of that money coming back. Um, So that's the group that's primarily affected. Um, They understand it. Their incomes will take a hit as a result of the policy. And we certainly saw at those public hearings there was a lot of anger amongst self-funded retirees about about the policy. Um, it was, you know, pretty intense in, in those mm. in those hearing rooms. Um, as you say, I think a lot of other people, you know, most people under 65 are not affected at all um, and, and most people don't really understand understand the policy. So they can sort mm. of see their sound and fury, um, but they're a little bit like, what, what is it that's going on? Yeah, well, up until three years ago, I'd never heard of franking credits, so <laughs> I still don't quite understand them. But when I think the thing that's really important to highlight and understand is the difference between um, well, the fact that Labor isn't actually getting rid of franking credits altogether. They're just saying that once your taxable income has been reduced to nil, you won't be getting a refund or a cheque in the mail from the ATO or what um, Bill Shorten would say is a gift um, of money that was the excess. Exactly right. So, you know, all a franking credit is is that companies pay tax in advance on behalf of their shareholders, so they pay tax at a 30% rate, you get a credit for that tax paid and the idea is to stop people paying tax twice. Um, and so at the moment, most people that are getting those credits, and for most of us, the only way we own shares is in our super fund, so this is all happening within the super fund so we don't see it, yeah. um, that's used to reduce the tax that either you're paying on, on those shareholdings or the super fund is paying. As you say, the, the change in policy is about the excess franking credits. So they occur when your tax has been reduced to zero. So it tends to only be people that are paying low rates of tax to start with, which is mainly um, in retirement because of the sort of tax breaks I've been talking about. Um, The cheque in the mail that exists at the moment won't be there anymore. Yeah. And it doesn't apply to certain segments too. Like aren't pensioners and not-for-profits exempted? Yeah, that's right. So um, in the initial policy, um, pensioners were in. They weren't because most um, pensioners don't um, have big <laughs> shareholdings because yeah. they're on the pension. Yes, exactly. Um, the full you know, pension, the, yeah. the, there wasn't that many that were going to be affected, but there um, there was certainly concern that some would have been affected, so now they have been exempted. So anyone either on the full or the part pension will mm-hmm. be exempted under the policy, and as you said, um, groups like not-for-profits are also exempted. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of 
interesting discussion around tax and like tax reform and needing to look at the entire picture of tax rather than just segments, which seems to be kind of easier for parties to do is to, you know, focus their attention on a chunk, obviously for probably communication purposes as as well as campaigning. Um, But it's also like interesting to see um, in your submission to the inquiry, which um, I've got in front of me, you were highlighting the fact that older households pay 7500 less in income tax in real terms today than older households did 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. And that is essentially because of the series of tax decisions that we, we talked about once you decided to exempt superannuation um, from tax in the in retirement phase, um, once you um, changed the or you introduced special tax offset for, for older households, once the decision was made to give back these refundable franking credits that we've been talking about, um, all of that has reduced the, the tax burden on, on older households. And it's got to the point now where the, the tax system is really segregated based on age. Um, so an older household earning $100,000 a year pays about the same amount of tax as a younger household on $50,000 a year. So we have some pretty substantial differences in the tax burden mm. um, according to age. Yeah, and presumably some of the older people may have been able to afford to buy their own house. Well, that's right. And housing, you know, so the backdrop against all of this is exactly right, is that um, there has been a a very sizable growth in in wealth in the population because of the the growth in housing markets. Obviously, we've seen a moderation of recent... In, in the last yeah. year, but you look at really since 1995, huge growth um, in in-house prices compared to income for people that owned a house before that or in the early years of that of that change, they've had a really big windfall increase in their wealth. So um, mm. the average household over 65 or between 65 and 74 is 500 thousand dollars richer today. This is on average 500 thousand dollars richer than a household that age was 12 years ago. For young people, there's barely been any movement in wealth yeah. over that time. So someone 35, 25 to 34 today is is really no more richer than someone of that age group was 12 years ago. And the, the, the big part of that difference is, is housing. Yeah, right. So obviously it, there's so much that's in, interconnected in the economic picture and the policies that we're seeing. Um, some of the Labor Party's policies are seeking to address housing to an extent, um, and another kind of controversial policy that they took to the last election was to change um, parts of the negative gearing policy, although they would make sure that um, people who are currently negative gearing um, in the way that they have been wouldn't be affected. It would just be in future from whenever the policy takes effect. What What is the policy that, they, that Labor's taken um, to the election because it clearly is a difference between Labor and the Coalition and do you think it would make much of a difference for um, people who might be buying their first home or trying to? Um, look, so the policy that they're taking is to um, essentially wind back negative gearing. So negative gearing um, is an advantage for um, housing investors because... If they are losing money after they pay um, all their expenses and their interest costs um, in the initial years of their investment, they're able to write that off in full um, against their uh, their income for tax purposes, against their wage and salary income for tax purposes. Um, 
you only do that, of course, if you expect to make a profit down the track through the capital gain on the property. Um, and when they sell and make that profit, they only pay tax on half that capital gain at that point in the future. Um, so what that means is quite a tax-advantaged um, environment in order to make a housing investment. Labor have said, yes, you can still write off losses, but not against your wage and salary income. You can only write it off against other investment income, which is essentially a part winding back of negative gearing. And they've said, we're going to reduce the discount um, that you get for um, those capital gains. So instead of paying tax on half the capital gain, you're going to pay tax on 75% of that capital gain. Um, so that's the policy change. Will it have an impact on house prices? It will, um, but I think it's been really overstated. Mm. Um, so if you look at the size of the tax concessions that they're taking out of the housing market um, and assume that that gets factored into prices on day one, you know, we estimate kind of a 1% to 2% fall. Um, but what it will mean if you're a home buyer, of course, that's, you know, small in the scheme of things, but you're going to be, you know, standing at the auction next to an investor that's slightly less cashed up yeah. than they were. So it will, I think, change the composition of the market a bit. We're already seeing actually a shift in the composition of the market mm. away from investors towards home buyers because of the, the changes um, around um, availability of interest-only loans and those sort of issues which have seen the banks cut back lending to investors. So we're already seeing this shift a bit. And I think... Um, you know, that, that shift will further continue yeah. under this policy. So, look, it will help home buyers, but I think you've got to be careful not to overstate the impact. Mm. Yeah, and, well, because Australia historically has put so much of its money into property, it's probably one of um, the go-to investment vehicles for most people or has been over the, you know, last decades um so and we've seen i guess people say it would be potentially better for uh, australia if there was more diversity in terms of the types of investments that people are making um do you think that what some uh portfolio managers have been saying around the franking credits issue is that people might try and put more of their money into global shares rather than local shares do you think there'll be any change in like the investment picture I think there will. I think um, both the negative gearing policy and the franking credits policy will probably change people's portfolios to some degree. Um, what we know, if we look at just franking credits first, is that a lot of retirees have been really, really heavy in um, blue chip stocks that, that give big dividends in order to get the benefit of the franking credits. Um, so you can argue that that, that policy has actually driven people to it have not very balanced portfolios. Yeah. Um, so, you know, expanding into bonds or overseas shares, um, you know, could be a good thing from a, from a risk management perspective. Um, certainly, I think there's a, there's a broader argument that um, Australians in general, not, not retirees now, but all Australians um, have been very keen to invest in property and, and you can understand why when you see those very big ramp-ups in prices over the past three mm. decades. Um, but, you know, you're essentially speculating on, on the market continuing to rise. Um, in a lot of cases, that's not a particularly productive uh, investment. A lot of it's going into existing housing stock. Some will go into new stock, but a lot of it's going into existing stock. Um, you know, people could look into, you know, um, investing in businesses or, you know, corporate bonds or there's all sorts of other types of investments um, that, that people can take, which may well have other benefits for the economy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the um, elements that affect people's ability to, I guess, invest, which a lot of it would be income. Um, in terms of wages growth, 
a lot has been said about the fact that it's been pretty stagnant um, in the private sector and that it's kind of not now linked to productivity growth as it used to or as people thought it did. Um, so, you know, a lot of business would say that, well, if you get become more productive, you will reap the rewards because we'll give you more money in your take-home pay. Um, but that doesn't seem to be necessarily the case. And we now see that um, the government in the budget papers has forecast um, a quite significant rise in wages growth, but it doesn't really... It's not obvious to me exactly how that would happen. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> so, look, there's been a bit of a perennial of the past five years that those wages numbers have looked really optimistic. Um, so... Essentially, economists don't fully understand what's going on with wages. And this is not just an Australian phenomenon, and this is happening right around the developed world. Um, so what we normally expect to see in, in, in labour markets is that as um, unemployment comes down um, and, and firms are you know trying hard to find more workers, you expect to see kind of wages move up over time. What we've seen in Australia in the last five years is unemployment coming down. It's actually quite low level now mm. at 5%. Yet wages, particularly private sector wages, as you said, have, have barely shifted. Um, so there's all sorts of uh, people running around <laughs> trying to understand what this actually means. Um, partly it is about lower productivity growth, but that certainly doesn't explain the whole thing. As you said, there's um, been a bit of a decoupling there. Um, so there's lots of theories, uh, you know, whether this is about kind of decline of um, union participation, um, whether this is about... Um, larger firms, like higher market concentration and firms having just more bargaining power against workers. Um, there, there's all sorts of theories that economists are looking into, but the bottom line is I think no one fully understands it. Um, and, and Treasury have been kind of pretty optimistically hoping that things return to normal in the budget paper. Mm. So that's why you get wages jumping up to 3.5% growth um, you know, three or four years out because, um, and not just Treasury, other forecasters have done the same. We, we don't really understand the world we're in, so we just kind of keep hoping that things go back to the world we used to know. <laughs> well, and it does affect the budget overall in a way because it means that the um, surpluses and funds that the government thinks they'll be receiving through income tax take would be higher if you're getting higher wages, you're taking more tax from those people. Yeah, usually. exactly right. That's right. So, um, you know, if you, particularly the, the numbers three and four years out look very optimistic. Um, so it may be if that if that world, if we don't return to the world we know and we yeah. continue in this um, kind of low wages growth world, um, the, the revenue take will not be as large as the government is forecasting. And so the, the, the surpluses will not be as big or, you know, potentially you're, you're in deficit rather than, than surplus. Mm. And so in terms of the two parties and their tax takes, um, there was also a great graph you had about the different governments over time and how much tax they took um, and spent. And it was interesting that um, the Howard government actually took a lot of tax uh, from people um, and the Hawke-Keating era still took a decent amount but wasn't as much, I believe. And so things have kind of been going a little bit up and down and up and down as we've seen the decades go on and Labor and coalition governments come in. But there is a definite difference in the Labor and coalition policies now. Do you think there's consensus around how much tax both parties would be taking when you put all of their policies together into a picture yeah, so the figures that are that are floating around and they're not perfect, so I would say this. So the coalition has pretty clearly said 
um, it wants to cap taxes as a share of the economy at, at 23.9%. Um, and that, I think, is a bit of a magical figure for the coalition because I think that was, I can't remember specifically, I think it was like the tax take for the final six years of the Howard government or something like that. So they've chosen mm. some component of the Howard government years and said, we don't want taxes to go any higher than this. And that's partly what's motivating the size of the income taxes that they're proposing going forward is to try and keep taxes down under that tax cap. Um, if we look at the sum total of Labor's policies, um, and it, it potentially overstates it a bit because it doesn't look at the interactions. These were numbers from Treasury that the government released. Um, that would see the tax share um, rise, I think, over 25% of GDP. Um, so as I said right at the very beginning, um, I think it is the case that there's quite two different models. So Labor's sort of saying, look, we're comfortable in a world where taxes rise as a share of the economy. Um, and we do that in order to fund more services and to make sure we've got a healthy budget bottom line. Coalition is clearly very focused on, on um, you know, keeping taxes, well, they'll be slightly higher than they are now, but, um, you know, not continuing to creep up over mm. time. Um, before I let you go, there is one element that is constantly in existence to some extent, which is bracket creep. And not many people can really put their finger on what exactly it means if you're just a lay person. So what does bracket creep mean for the average person? It, for all of us, bracket creep means that our average tax rates creep up over time if there is not cut, tax cuts. So if there's no changes to tax rates and scales, all of us are going to be paying a slightly higher average tax rate year after year. And the reason is that because our wages grow, even if they're not growing in real terms because of inflation, generally the headline number is going up, um, it means we're earning a higher share of our income in our top tax bracket. So bracket creep isn't just about people jumping up into the next tax bracket. It affects absolutely everyone that's paying tax. Um, so if governments go a long period, and we, we have gone about six years without really doing much to tax rates and scales, that means for all of us our average tax rates are creeping up over time. Um, the faster wages are growing, the faster bracket creep um, is in effect. Um, so, you know, the more of an impact it has. But even in the current environment where real wages haven't been growing much, the fact that they are growing by inflation means that your average tax rate is rising. Mm, yep. And so, you know, obviously when you look at the two different um, approaches and philosophies, there is a trade-off, which is that Labor is seeking to spend more money on things like health and education and potentially welfare and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And it's um, obviously they're taking this package to the people to say, do you want these things? Is this what you value and where you want your money to go? Would you rather have a personal tax cut yourself or would you rather have, a, I guess, a whole of community improvement in services. That's exactly how I would distinguish the, the difference in terms of the budget policies. Mm. In terms of the tax and spending, I think that's the that's the, exactly the choice that's on the table. Yeah. So I guess it's probably great that that is more of the focus instead of things like immigration, which has been so divisive in the last few um, elections where perhaps these issues, although they're still a really important focus for voters, haven't necessarily been as front and centre for both parties. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, this is the first time 
um, in a long time where we're really having, a, you know, it was a really stark choice in terms of economic policies. And it was, you know, it seems like we're actually having a, a proper and healthy debate about it. Mm, it is good to see. It's such a relief because <laughs> for someone who I'm sure you do too watches election campaigns closely, it can get a bit tragic and soul-destroying when you don't talk about policy and you're mainly talking about who did what gaff every day. <laughs> I entirely agree with you. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Danielle, for coming in and sharing your expertise. And I know that a lot of people will be suitably enlightened and hopefully be able to make an informed decision when they put their vote in on May 18. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's great to be here. I've been speaking with Danielle Wood, who is based at the Grattan Institute, and she's the Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director. And um, she's been writing a, a range of um, reports on the issues that we've been discussing, which you can find on the Grattan Institute website. Danielle is the Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director at the Grattan Institute, and she is a trained economist. Um, but don't hold that against her. <laughs> Hi, Danielle. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's We're great not to all have dismal. You. No, you're not. That's what is the fantastic thing about um, that women economist group that you set up. Yeah, is that there's so many other great economists out there, not just the typical talking heads we often see at budget time. Yeah, exactly. We have a lot of fantastic, young, dynamic women economists out there that we're trying to kind of get out into the public domain because, yeah, the, the public face is still very much kind of the old guy in the suit, but totally. we're trying to change that. Yes. Um, I'll just have you tip your mic up a little bit if that's all right. Perfect. Um, so... We did see some of those, you know, traditional types on budget night and it was interesting to see how different economists talk about policy in different ways because there is this kind of... Um, there are value judgments or choices that politicians make when it comes to policy and the budget is probably one of the most political documents because where you put your money kind of shows what you prioritise um, and also a whole lot of other, you know, ways about and ways to indicate how your party or government actually approaches different types of economic challenges such as uh, wages growth being stagnant, um, consumption really dropping, uh, the housing sector get, taking the heat out of that and what that you know, is an implication for state budgets as well as federal budgets. So it is a very revealing document, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's always a revealing doc document, but I think particularly the one before an election tells you a lot about those sort of values that you're talking about. Um, so you get a lot from just looking at the policies and where the emphasis is. And I think actually this time around... There's a real distinction between the two major parties. Um, so if you kind of look at the document that, that Josh Frydenberg handed down, the, the emphasis was very much on bringing down tax, bringing down government as a share of the economy. Um, and, and the flip side of that, which we put less emphasis on, though, is, is lower government spending. Obviously, if you're bringing down taxes, um, then you have to spend less over time as well. Whereas the, the Labor government, I think, has pretty clearly signalled it's more comfortable with, with taxes rising as a share of the economy, spending more on services and perhaps some healthier budget bottom lines. So we, we in terms of the economics, we actually have a really distinct choice at this election, I think, about kind of what sort of society we want to live in. Yeah. Yeah, it is pretty rare and different from the past couple of elections where there wasn't a huge difference in the parties at all. Um, there were some differences such as, I mean, Labor has put out 
some of these policies they're taking to this election they took also to the last election, such as the changes to negative gearing and capital gains tax, um, changes to superannuation tax concessions. Um, so there are some kind of contentious policies that will affect um, some of the older generations of Australians, um, though also positively perhaps affect the younger generation of Australians as well. Um, so why don't we highlight, I guess, the intergenerational aspect of this before we head into the details about tax and, and those changes? Because I know you wrote a piece on Budget Day to talk about, you know, this is a major issue is that, you know, younger people are struggling to buy a home. They, um, and also just families in general, are not being able to afford um, the things that they need to be able to function. Like it's hard to pay the bills, pay the rent, keep your car going, take your kids to childcare, all these various things that people struggle with. And so that has been a real focus for both parties, but they have very different ways of approaching it. And it looks like perhaps Labor has more of a plan in terms of um, helping young people get into the housing market, for example, um, and or receive some, like have a bit of a balancing of the impacts of, of policy levers. Yeah, I think that's right. I think there really is, um, you know, a real difference in the kind of generational narrative coming out of the, the two parties. Um, and I think um, what Labor's kind of picking up on and, and what I was talking about in the piece is that over the past two decades, um, there's really been a, a series of, of policy changes um, that have um, really been to the benefit of kind of better off older Australians. Um, so, for example, the decision to exempt superannuation from tax in retirement, um, which meant that you could have you know quite substantial savings in your superannuation and not be making a contribution to the tax system. Um, the, the changes around franking credits, which meant that you could get refunds for franking credits, which are, um, can be quite large for, for people with big short share portfolios in retirement. And also there are actually special tax rates for, for older Australians, so they get a bigger tax-free threshold effectively than than younger Australians. Um, all of those together have meant that well-off older Australians are now actually not paying much more income tax than they did even 25 years ago, even though their incomes and wealth is, is much, much higher. Mm. And that sort of reorientation of the tax system is particularly an issue in a world where you have an ageing population. So as the baby boomers hit retirement age, um, that demographic shift is going to mean that we have less or fewer people of working age for each person over 65. And at the same time, you're ramping up the size of the transfers to people over 65. I've got real concerns about the sort of sustainability of the budget going forward. What that would mean is the only way you can make that those numbers work is essentially mm. to up taxes on younger people. Um, and I think what Labor's doing is saying, well, let's shift the balance of policies, including, for example, on franking credits and a few other areas, in order to reduce those future pressures. Yeah, and they will be big pressures because, I mean, our health system is still struggling to keep up with how things are at the moment, um, as we can see, and more and more people need to pay to have private health insurance to fill this kind of gap that is there. And um, and certainly you see that kind of inequality in terms of access to um, health care and the, I guess the long waiting lists that exist in a public sector or public hospital sector. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, health is one of those areas where historically it's always grown faster than the economy. We see that right around the developed world. That's not just an Australian specific thing. Um, as new technologies, new treatments become available, people want access to them more than understandably. Mm. Um, but those things do come at a cost. Um, so sometimes the government rations through things like waiting lists. Um, but 
even with that rationing, health spending still tends to grow much faster. If So if we want to continue to get access to the latest and greatest treatments, which I think most people do, um, we have to realise that that comes at a cost. And, and I think what we haven't really had the conversation um, about how it is that we actually pay for that. Um, you know, are we willing to, you know, allow taxes to creep up a bit so that we can continue to let health spending grow? Or do we need to find cuts in other areas in order to finance that? Mm. And do you think that is really one of the key questions we're discussing in this election? I think um, it sits behind the discussion in this election. So if we, we look at the budget, um, the coalition is actually forecasting that its government spending will fall as a share of economy quite over drastically the next... too. Yeah, it's like about... not really a slow fall. It's like quite a significant fall in the money that they're spending. Isn't it also on um, welfare? Well, so they've said that, um, yeah, so they said that what's driving that downward fall in spending as a share of the economy is um, welfare, well, partly about lower welfare spending. Um, that looks, you know, a bit optimistic to me, given that we've already got, um, you know, we've got pretty low unemployment rate already. To think that you're going to be able to kind of push that down much lower and save much on the welfare budget is a bit strange. We know that the NDIS is going to be ramping up um, a lot over the next four years, so we expect mm. to see spending rising substantially there. Um, and, and payments like the age pension, um, you know, are they're going to increase rather than decrease because we've got more people moving into retirement age. So I think there is some funny things going on with the assumptions around spending over the 10-year the period. Um, and those spending numbers are really what gives the coalition the result that they've been talking about, which is growing surpluses even when you're giving really big tax cuts. Mm. And they are giving massive tax cuts, like if we're putting it into perspective here and, and looking at their plan as a long-term plan because this is a 10-year essentially plan with three stages um, proposed and it would come into effect um, from July at least the first stage um, for either of the parties because there is some consensus um, on that and it was interesting to see Labor um, say that oh well we're so um, happy that the coalition has caught up with Labor from last year and then Labor then took it a next step further um, in terms of the lower um, income level and trying to give greater tax relief to that level or sec section of Australia rather than the high top end. Yeah, that's right. So they're actually, in terms of the plans for the next three years, so mm. the next term, there's not that much difference between them now. So about 70% of people will pay the same amount of tax, um, whether you know Scott Morrison wins the election or Bill Shorten wins the election. As you say, the, the key differences are for people earning under 48000 um, Labor will give a slightly bigger tax offset, about $90 a year extra. And for people right at the top end, for people earning over 180000 which is about 3% of taxpayers, um, Labor will... Um, charge them a higher marginal tax rate, 47, as opposed to 45%, which is about $400 a year in extra tax if you're someone on, say, $200,000. Mm. Um, so it's people at kind of the, the either end of the income spectrum that will um, have a different outcome under the two plans, but for most people it's the same. The big differences come, um, you know, under stage two and three of the coalition's plans. So stage three happens in 2024-25. So we are talking kind of two elections out after yeah. this one. So it is, it's it's somewhat of a hypothetical discussion in a way, but nonetheless, this is the plan that coalitions put on the table. So that's what we kind of have to analyse. At that point, there is very large tax cuts. They take out the 37 cent bracket. 
so that everyone earning between 45000 and 200000 is on the same marginal tax rate and they're bringing that marginal tax rate to $0.30 cents in a dollar. So that's quite a substantial change to the shape of the tax system in the country. It's also, um, it costs a lot of revenue. So mm. most of the cost of the $300 billion plan comes in that particular stage. Um, and Labor has said that it, that it won't match those those tax cuts. So for, you know, high income earners, um, that could be worth up to sort of $11,000, $12,000 a year in, in tax difference between the two parties. So it is it is a sizeable difference, um, obviously smaller at the, at the lower end, but Mm. And there's also a way, I guess, with some of the more wealthier parts of Australia, they often will have like family trusts or foundations and utilise their superannuation in order to reduce their taxable income so that they aren't paying as much tax anyway um, to begin with. So I guess there are ways in which um, people who have excellent accounting can actually reduce what the tax office takes from them anyway. Yeah, that's right. It's a bit of a, a perennial is that, um, you know, that the higher income people will have the better advice and there are um, a number of ways in which they can legally uh, minimise their tax. Um, so on, interesting, though, on some things like family trusts where um, that's traditionally been used to kind of split income. So um, if you've got a um, you know spouse or a family member that's on a low income, you can use a trust to split some of your income with them and get the benefit of the tax-free threshold for that particular individual. Um, Labor does have a policy to, to crack down on that sort of income splitting through discretionary trusts. Um, essentially, they've said that you'll pay a minimum of $0.30 cents, um, tax in the dollar on, on any kind of distribution from a trust. Mm. Um, so that will help address um, some of those loopholes that, that do exist for, for better-off people in the system. Yeah, and they are... Um obviously loopholes that people can take advantage of, as you said, entirely legally. Um, But obviously you need to be of a certain means to be able to sometimes set up trusts or have your own self-managed super fund. It takes a bit more effort and time to do some of the financial things that um, wealthier people can do. But I was interested in your graphs Um, There are so many of them. (laughs) I love graphs. You too. (laughs) I'm an economist. (laughs) Exactly. It's tragic that we're on radio and I can't show them to you, but um, there was a graph around um, where the average Australian income sits and it's substantially lower than most people would assume. Yeah, that's right. So we often get the figure bandied around about average income and that really is average full-time income is about $90,000 a year. But if we – that's – you know, that is the top 20% of taxpayers So, because the average is skewed mm. by high-income people. If we take the median instead, i.e. someone right in the middle of the income distribution, someone at the 50% mark, um, then we find that median income, I think, I don't have the chart in front of me, is about $50,000. Um, so it is um, a lot lower than um, a lot of people realise. Of course, that's because um, a lot of people work part-time mm, yeah. rather than, rather than full-time. Um, and I think... Um, you know, when they do surveys, most Australians think of themselves as middle income. And that's often because we kind of um, socialise with people that we work with and maybe in a similar income group to us. Um, and so, you know, you have people earning, you know, upwards of $120,000 a year, which would put them in the, you know, the top 10% of income earners. Yeah. Uh, they think they're middle income. People earning upwards of 200000 they'll put them in the top 3% of income earners also think they're middle income. Mm. So I think, you know, perhaps in some of these discussions, having a better idea of what the actual income distribution looks like can bring us back into reality. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people would be 
like reflecting on their own situation and going, how does one live on 50000 if you didn't have a partner to also contribute a similar income level? Yeah, that's right. So some, some of those people will have um, partners um, and so they'll be living in a household with higher levels of income, even if the individual has lower levels. But, um, you know, a lot of people would be living on that alone. And we, I mean, look, we know people live on, on Newstart for $40 a day, um, you know, certainly not comfortably. And, you know, it is, um, you know, a real shame. I think we've let that get um, to such a, a low level, but, you know, people do get by, but obviously, you know, once in your, the, that part of the income distribution, there can be a lot of cost of living pressures. Yes, there are. Um, certainly also if you have children, it gets more stressful as time goes on, I'm told. Um, so let's, delve into one of the topics that has come up for us a lot is franking credits. It's kind of a funny name and I know there's dividend imputation is another way of referring to these things but is there like we saw a very big controversy as soon as Labor made this announcement which they did make quite a while ago now to to me it seems like ages ago probably wasn't Um, but they've They've announced it at least well in advance mm. for the coalition to announce a parliamentary inquiry into an opposition policy, which was led by the um, economics chair, uh, Tim Wilson, who is a member, I think he's in Brighton, yeah, um, in a Bayside electorate in Melbourne. And, uh, and that was really quite surprising and it seems like a bit of a microcosm for the the issue itself and the way it's played out in the media and also in the general population which is there's like one side that's like really angry and there's another side that's either apathetic or confused yeah I think that's right I think so look the people that stand to to lose from the policy um, tend to be better off older Australians Um, so the reason they end up losing is they've either got their money in a self-managed super fund um, or they have a kind of reasonable packet of of shares that they held directly. Um, Because of the way um, taxation around super and other aspects of retirement works, often these people uh, are not paying tax or they're paying low levels of tax. And that means when they get the franking credits back, they get a refund. So they're not using it to write down their tax like everyone else is. Mm. They're actually getting a cheque in the mail, which is kind of that money coming back. Um, So that's the group that's primarily affected. Um, They understand it. Their incomes will take a hit as a result of the policy. And we certainly saw at those public hearings there was a lot of anger amongst self-funded retirees about about the policy. Um, it was, you know, pretty intense in, in those mm. in those hearing rooms. Um, as you say, I think a lot of other people, you know, most people under 65 are not uh, affected at all um, and, and most people don't really understand understand the policy. So they can sort mm. of see their sound and fury, um, but they're a little bit like, what, what is it that's going on? Yeah, well, up until three years ago, I'd never heard of franking credits, so <laughs> I still don't quite understand them. But when I think the thing that's really important to highlight and understand is the difference between um, well the fact that Labor isn't actually getting rid of franking credits altogether they're just saying that once your taxable income has been reduced to nil you won't be getting a refund or a check in the mail from the ATO or what um, Bill Shorten would say is a gift um, of money that was the excess. Exactly right so you know all a franking credit is is that companies pay tax in advance on behalf of their shareholders, so they pay tax at a 30% rate, you get a credit for that tax paid and the idea is to stop people paying tax twice. 
Um, and so at the moment, most people that are getting those credits, and for most of us, the only way we own shares is in our super fund. So this is all happening within the super fund so we don't see it. Yeah. Um, that's used to reduce the tax that either you're paying on, on those shareholdings or the super fund is paying. As you say, the, the change in policy is about the excess franking credits. So they occur when your tax has been reduced to zero. So it tends to only be people that are paying low rates of tax to start with, which is mainly um, in retirement because of the sort of tax breaks I've been talking about. Um, the cheque in the mail that exists at the moment won't be there anymore. Yeah. And it doesn't apply to certain segments too. Like is, aren't pensioners and not-for-profits exempted? Yeah, that's right. So um, in the initial policy, um, pensioners were in. They weren't because most um, pensioners don't um, have big <laughs> shareholdings because yeah. they're on the pension. Yes, exactly, um, the full you know, pension. The, yeah. the, there wasn't that many that were going to be affected, but there, um, there was certainly concern that some would have been affected, so now they have been exempted. So anyone either on the full or the part pension will mm-hmm. be exempted under the policy. And as you said, um, groups like not-for-profits are also exempted. Yeah. So um, there's a lot of interesting discussion around tax and like tax reform and needing to look at the entire picture of tax rather than just segments, which seems to be kind of easier for parties to do is to, you know, focus their attention on a chunk, obviously for probably communication purposes as as well as campaigning. Um, But it's also like interesting to see um, in your submission to the inquiry, which um, I've got in front of me, you were highlighting the fact that older households pay 7500 less in income tax in real terms today than older households did 20 years ago. Yeah, that's right. And that is essentially because of the series of tax decisions that we, we talked about. Once you decided to exempt superannuation um, from tax in the in retirement phase. Um, once you um, changed the or you introduced special tax offset for, for older households, once the decision was made to give back these refundable franking credits that we've been talking about, um, all of that has reduced the, the tax burden on, on older households. And it's got to the point now where the, the tax system is really segregated based on age. Um, so an older household earning $100,000 a year pays about the same amount of tax as a younger household on $50,000 a year. So we have some pretty substantial differences in the tax burden Mm. um, according to age. Yeah, and presumably some of the older people may have been able to afford to buy their own house. Well, that's right. And housing, you know, so the backdrop against all Mm. of this is exactly right, is that um, there has been a, a very sizable growth in, in wealth in the population because of the, the growth in housing markets. Obviously, we've seen a moderation of recent in, in the last yeah. year, but you look at really since 1995, huge growth um, in, in house prices compared to income. For people that owned a house before that or in the early years of that of that change, they've had a really big windfall increase in their wealth. So um, mm. the average household over 65 or between 65 and 74 is $500,000 richer today. This is on average $500,000 richer than a household that age was 12 years ago. For young people, there's barely been any movement in wealth yeah. over that time. So someone 35, 25 to 34 today is is really no more richer than someone of that age group was 12 years ago. And the, the, the big part of that difference is, is housing. Yeah, right. So obviously it, there's so much that's in, interconnected in the economic picture and the policies that we're seeing. Um, some of the 
Labor Party's policies are seeking to address housing to an extent. Um, and another kind of controversial policy that they took to the last election was to change um, parts of the negative gearing policy, although they would make sure that um, people who are currently negative gearing um, in the way that they have been wouldn't be affected. It would just be in future from whenever the policy takes effect. What What is the policy that they that Labor's taken um, to the election? Because it clearly is a difference between Labor and the Coalition. And do you think it would make much of a difference for um, people who might be buying their first home or trying to? Um, look, so the policy that they're taking is to um, essentially wind back negative gearing. So negative gearing um, is an advantage for um, housing investors because... If they are losing money after they pay um, all their expenses and their interest costs um, in the initial years of their investment, they're able to write that off in full um, against their uh, their income for tax purposes, against their wage and salary income for tax purposes. Um, you only do that, of course, if you expect to make a profit down the track through the capital gain on the property. Um, and when they sell and make that profit, they only pay tax on half that capital gain at that point in the future. Um, so what that means is quite a tax-advantaged um, environment in order mm. to make a housing investment. Labor have said, yes, you can still write off losses, but not against your wage and salary income. You can only write it off against other investment income, which is essentially a part winding back of negative gearing. And they've said, we're going to reduce the discount um, that you get for um, those capital gains. So instead of paying tax on half the capital gain, you're going to pay tax on 75% of that capital gain. Um, so that's the policy change. Will it have an impact on house prices? It will, um, but I think it's been really overstated. Mm. Um, so if you look at the size of the tax concessions that they're taking out of the housing market um, and assume that that gets factored into prices on day one, you know, we estimate kind of a 1% to 2% fall. Um, but what it will mean if you're a home buyer, of course, that's, you know, small in the scheme of things, but you're going to be, you know, standing at the auction next to an investor that's slightly less cashed up yeah. than they were. So it will, I think, change the composition of the market a bit. We're already seeing actually a shift in the composition of the market mm. away from investors towards home buyers because of the, the changes um, around um, availability of interest-only loans and those sort of issues which have seen the banks cut back lending to investors. So we're already seeing the shift a bit. And I think... Um, um, you know, that, that shift will further continue yeah. under this policy. So, look, it will help home buyers, but I think you've got to be careful not to overstate the impact. Mm. Yeah, and, well, because Australia historically has put so much of its money into property, it's probably one of um, the go-to investment vehicles for most people or has been over the, you know, last decades um, so and we've seen I guess people say it would be potentially better for uh, Australia if there was more diversity in terms of the types of investments that people are making um, do you think that what some uh, portfolio managers have been saying around the franking credits issue is that people might try and put more of their money into global shares rather than local shares do you think there'll be any change in like the investment picture I think there will. I think um, both the negative gearing policy and the franking credits policy will probably change people's portfolios to some degree. Um, what we know, if we look at just franking credits first, is that a lot of retirees have been really, really heavy in um, blue chip stocks that, that give big dividends in order to get the benefit of the franking credits. Um, so you can argue that, that that policy has actually driven people to a, 
have not very balanced portfolios. Yeah. Um, so, you know, expanding into bonds or overseas shares, um, you know, could be a good thing from a, from a risk management perspective. Um, certainly, I think there's a, there's a broader argument that um, Australians in general, not, not retirees now, but all Australians um, have been very keen to invest in property and, and you can understand why when you see those very big ramp ups in prices over the past three decades. Mm. Um, but, you know, you're essentially speculating on, on the market continuing to rise. Um, in a lot of cases, that's not a particularly productive uh, investment. A lot of it's going into existing housing stock. Some will go into new stock, but a lot of it's going into existing stock. Um, you know, people could look into, you know, um, investing in businesses or, you know, corporate bonds or there's all sorts of other types of investments um, that, that people can take, which may well have other benefits for the economy. Yeah. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the um, elements that affect people's ability to, I guess, invest, which a lot of it would be income. Um, in terms of wages growth, a lot has been said about the fact that it's been pretty stagnant um, in the private sector and that it's kind of not now linked to productivity growth as it used to or as people thought it did. Um, so, you know, a lot of business would say that, well, if you get become more productive, you will reap the rewards because we'll give you more money in your take-home pay. Um, but that doesn't seem to be necessarily the case. And we now see that um, the government in the budget papers has forecast um, a quite significant rise in wages growth, but it doesn't really... It's not obvious to me exactly how that would happen. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, <laughs> so, look, there's been a bit of a perennial of the past five years that those wages numbers have looked really optimistic. Um, so... Essentially, economists don't fully understand what's going on with wages. And this is not just an Australian phenomenon, and this is happening right around the developed world. Um, so what we normally expect to see in, in, in labour markets is that as um, unemployment comes down um, and, and firms are you know, trying far, hard to find more workers, you expect to see kind of wages move up over time. What we've seen in Australia in the last five years is unemployment coming down. It's actually quite low level now mm. at 5%. Yet wages, particularly private sector wages, as you said, have, have barely shifted. Um, so there's all sorts of uh, people running around <laughs> trying to understand what this actually means. Um, partly it is about lower productivity growth, but that certainly doesn't explain the whole thing. As you said, there's um, been a bit of a decoupling there. Um, so there's lots of theories, uh, you know, whether this is about kind of decline of um, union participation, um, whether this is about... Um, larger firms, like higher market concentration and firms having just more bargaining power against workers. Um, there, there's all sorts of theories that economists are looking into, but the bottom line is I think no one fully understands it. Um, and, and Treasury have been kind of pretty optimistically hoping that things return to normal in the budget paper. Mm. So that's why you get wages jumping up to 3.5% growth um, you know, three or four years out because, um, and not just Treasury, other forecasters have done the same. We, we don't really understand the world we're in, so we just kind of keep hoping that things go back to the world we used to know. <laughs> well, and it does affect the budget overall in a way because it means that the um, surpluses and funds that the government thinks they'll be receiving through income tax take would be higher if you're getting higher wages, you're taking more tax from those people. 
Yeah, usually. exactly right. That's right. So, um, you know, if you particularly the, the numbers three and four years out look very optimistic. Um, so it may be if that if that world, if we don't return to the world we know and we yeah. continue in this um, kind of low wages growth world, um, the, the revenue take will not be as large as the government is forecasting. And so the, the, the surpluses will not be as big or, you know, potentially you're, you're in deficit rather than, than surplus. Mm. And so in terms of the two parties and their tax takes, um, there was also a great graph you had about the different governments over time and how much tax they took um, and spent. And it was interesting that um, the Howard government actually took a lot of tax uh, from people um, and the Hawke-Keating era still took a decent amount but wasn't as much, I believe. And so things have kind of been going a little bit up and down and up and down as we've seen the decades go on and Labor and coalition governments come in. But there is a definite difference in the Labor and coalition policies now. Do you think there's consensus around how much tax both parties would be taking when you put all of their policies together into a picture yeah, so the figures that are that are floating around and they're not perfect, so I would say this. So the coalition has pretty clearly said um, it wants to cap taxes as a share of the economy at, at 23.9%. Um, and that, I think, is a bit of a magical figure for the coalition because I think that was, I can't remember specifically, I think it was like the tax take for the final six years of the Howard government or something like that. So they've chosen mm. some component of the Howard government years and said, we don't want taxes to go any higher than this. And that's partly what's motivating the size of the income taxes that they're proposing going forward is to try and keep taxes down under that tax cap. Um, if we look at the sum total of Labor's policies, um, and it, it potentially overstates it a bit because it doesn't look at the interactions, these were numbers from Treasury that the government released, um, that would see the tax share um, rise, I think, over 25% of GDP. Um, so as I said right at the very beginning, um, I think it is the case that there's quite two different models. So Labor's sort of saying, look, we're comfortable in a world where taxes rise as a share of the economy. Um, and we do that in order to fund more services and to make sure we've got a healthy budget bottom line. Coalition is clearly very focused on, on um, you know, keeping taxes, well, they'll be slightly higher than they are now, but, um, you know, not continuing to creep up over mm. time. Um, before I let you go, there is one element that is constantly in existence to some extent which is bracket creep and not many people can really put their finger on what exactly it means if you're just a lay person so what does bracket creep mean for the average person it for all of us bracket creep means that our average tax rates creep up over time if there is not cut, tax cuts so if there's no changes to tax rates and scales all of us are going to be paying a slightly higher average tax rate year after year. And the reason is that because our wages grow, even if they're not growing in real terms because of inflation, generally the headline number is going up, um, it means we're earning a higher share of our income in our top tax bracket. So bracket creep isn't just about people jumping up into the next tax bracket. It affects absolutely everyone that's paying tax. Um, so if governments go a long period, and we, we have gone about six years without really doing much to tax rates and scales, that means for all of us our average tax rates 
are creeping up over time. Um, the faster wages are growing, the faster bracket creep um, is in effect. Um, so, you know, the more of an impact it has. But even in the current environment where real wages haven't been growing much, the fact that they are growing by inflation means that your average tax rate is rising. Mm, yep. And so, you know, obviously when you look at the two different um, approaches and philosophies, there is a trade-off, which is that Labor is seeking to spend more money on things like health and education and potentially welfare and the National Disability Insurance Scheme. And it's um, obviously they're taking this package to the people to say, do you want these things? Is this what you value and where you want your money to go? Would you rather have a personal tax cut yourself or would you rather have, a, I guess, a whole of community improvement in services. That's exactly how I would distinguish the, the difference in terms of the budget policies. Mm. In terms of the tax and spending, I think that's the that's exactly the choice that's on the table. Yeah. So I guess it's probably great that that is more of the focus instead of things like immigration, which has been so divisive in the last few um, elections where perhaps these issues, although they're still a really important focus for voters, haven't necessarily been as front and centre for both parties. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, this is the first time um, in a long time where we're really having, a, you know, it was a really stark choice in terms of economic policies and it was, you know, it seems like we're actually having a, a proper and healthy debate about it. Mm, it is good to see. It's such a relief because <laughs> for someone who I'm sure you do too watches election campaigns closely, it can get a bit tragic and soul-destroying when you don't talk about policy and you're mainly talking about who did what gaff every day. <laughs> I entirely agree with you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Danielle, for coming in and sharing your expertise. And I know that a lot of people will be suitably enlightened and hopefully be able to make an informed decision when they put their vote in on May 18. Thanks for having me, Amy. It's great to be here. I've been speaking with Danielle Wood, who is based at the Grattan Institute, and she is the Budget Policy and Institutional Reform Program Director. And um, she's been writing a a range of um, reports on the issues that we've been discussing, which you can find on the Grattan Institute website. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.